Well, thank you, Jean-Michel, for getting everybody to sit down uh, after having had a good lunch and some good conversations, food and food for thought, for the third and final session. In the first two sessions in this morning, we have looked back over the last 10 years. And what we like to do now in this next session is looking forward over the next 10 years. This year, the EU ETS has turned into a denature. I'm speaking myself in, from a household that has two denatures in its households. So I think now comes the, if somebody thinks the first 10 years are the difficult years, now comes the next 10 years. And it's in a way, I guess, probably teenage years that we all know from our own, from our own growing up is probably the formative years in terms of where we're going in our lives. So this is going to be a very interesting period we're going into now. We have had some very important decisions taken on the next 10 years and more for the EU ETS recently. In January 2014, uh, the Commission proposed a framework for climate and energy policy up to the year 2030. In January 2014, the Commission proposed legislation for creating a market stability reserve in the ETS. This framework, which creates a political, uh, political guidance for what the ETS should look like up to 2030, was agreed by leaders in October last year. The legislation on the market stability reserve uh, was agreed just a few weeks ago. It's not published yet in the official journal of the European Union, but the final steps are taken now, and in a few weeks' time, it will be a published law in the European Journal and a market stability reserve will be established in the year 2018 and will start operating in the year 2019. So in a way you could say all the decisions have been taken, is it still useful to look back forward for the next 10 years? And that's basically the question that I would like to focus on these conversations here now. All the reflections we had this morning, where we were coming from, how it has been done, are there any major big things that we're missing out after we had a design developed that is establishing now, settled down now. Is there one big thing that is left, one or two big things that's left to be done over the next 10 years beyond what our leaders have decided that what should be the legislative menu? I have some six uh, distinguished panelists whom I'll invite to answer that question. So in short, I have, have asked the six of them say, what is the one big thing, the one major thing for the next 10 years that should be changed. And in order to make this something up to five minutes, not only what is the one thing that should be changed, but I've also given them the task, say, what are the technical and or political hurdles or impediments for making those changes? So what good idea is there? And this is a good idea that's not only there, but this is a good idea that could make it in practice. So that's the program that I, that I would like to start this session with. And I've changed a bit the order compared to the program that you see. I would like to start first with a person that has been mentioned already quite often over dinner and, and in the conversations today, somebody who can bring in not so much a European perspective, but a perspective very much enriched from work both in the US and in China. I would like first to, uh, uh, sorry, no, sorry, I've, I've changed the order now. This is the second person. In fact, I think it's also the same for, this, for, the, for the other person. First, I would like to invite Dirk Forrester from the International Emissions Trading Association. You heard quite often this morning the, the short form AITA. AITA stands for the International Emissions Trading Association, who is introduced by a funder now. So, Dirk, the floor is yours for the next five minutes. <laughs> yeah, the, the thunder and lightning begins. Uh, thanks, Peter. And there for a second, I... I uh, you know, you, 
a lot of my biography and the guy next to me do sound a lot alike, so it's, uh, um, it, it's a pleasure to be on a panel here with Dan. Um, first, I wanted just to, uh, as a shout out, um, uh, Sarah DeBlock and our team prepared a 10-year uh, anniversary of the EU ETS, at least AIDA's take on it, that we released this week and we'll be distributing at Carbon Expo. Uh, Dan's already corrected me that it's only got one candle on it instead of 10. So, uh, but, but I'm, I'm sure that's a decadal candle. So thinking about uh, where we've been and where things might need to go, uh, uh, it's a great discipline Peter gave us to focus on one thing. Um, and I think as the conversation continues to evolve within AIDA, we still look at this trillion ton limit that we must be dealing with, or that's what the, <laughs> Uh, IPCC has given us as a number to work toward. We're quickly burning that up as quickly as we can. Looks like 2040s are the time frame when it'll all be gone if we don't act soon. Uh, so there's an understanding that um, we need much more robust action and that a lot more is going to be expected of the EU ETS over time. Um, that trillion ton limit, of course, is what links over to the two degree limit. Some people think we've passed two degrees, some people think we ought to be talking about one and a half degrees, but right now, as far as we can read it, the two degree objective seems to be what we're all working toward. And we know that Europe's stated objective is to be by 2050 in the 80 to 95% range, which is pretty much complete decarbonization of the power sector if I understand the numbers right. So it's a heroic task. And managing that cost effectively is going to take much more of what we've been doing. But I also think that it um, should include some kind of a broader engagement internationally. And so that's where I'm going to focus my remarks. Um, as, I, as I mentioned earlier, there have been um, some of the great successes I think of the ETS has been how it brought the global community along in the absence of action by the U.S. and Canada and Australia, who were all instrumental in getting the tool put in the Kyoto Protocol to begin with. Uh, but it really fell to Europe to fill that crisis and, uh, and, and to Japan to sort of create a, uh, a really workable system. And it had its challenges, but overall I think it gave us a preview of what the real need is. Uh, and the real need is to have a global response and global cooperation. And with Paris coming up, I think there's an opportunity here to, to build on what Denny referenced earlier about the EU being sort of the one major uh, carbon club that's been there that's showed that it can work across borders. And uh, that was thunder for those of you on the line. That was not, that was not Joss hitting the table. <laughs> um, and, and I guess as I think about practically uh, how to do it, I think we have a couple of options. One is to build on the history of the past and do it within the, whatever the new agreement is, do it in a, in a sense amongst the coalition that's involved in the, uh, the, the aftermath of, of Paris. Those that want to work on markets, I suspect, will have hooks in the agreement to allow them to do so. Or it could be that there's a new institution that emerges to do that. And one option for that might be if the EU actually made clear what its intention was longer term with regard to this. And I almost think of it as the linking directive too. So is the linking directive of the future going to be something that might offer what I think of as kind of a standard offer to the rest of the world of 
what it would take to link into the European emissions trading scheme. I understand there are a lot of challenges with that, and certainly governance is one of them, but that standard, uh, that standard offer could be something like if you are willing to uh, cap your largest sector, maybe make some of the other sectors offset eligible, that that might be a price of entry, that there might be a plan in place for phasing in other sectors, that there might be some supplemental use of offsets from whatever the new uh, offset mechanism turns out to be. And the other one that might be creative would be to offer space for other emission trading systems in a common registry. Right now, the only registry outside of the EU's registry, common, common registry, is that at the UN level. But we don't actually know yet whether that will exist. Uh, my organization is advocating that it should exist. We'd like to have that option available. But this is another way that, that maybe in a, in a way that's comfortable for Europe, it could look at building it out. It might also offer linkages for those that are below a certain emissions threshold that, you know, aren't big enough to run a full-blown emissions trading program, um, to have the ability to either opt into the system with certain of their sectors or participate via offsets. And I think, um, uh, I'm thinking back to the uh, African Carbon Forum that AIDA convened a few weeks ago in Marrakesh, where there were... Uh, calls from a number of ministers for market access for the future so that the uh, ability to contribute in the international arena might be done through markets as well as through climate finance. And I think it's partly because they don't necessarily trust that the hundred billion uh, per year is going to be there in a way that they can rely on. Um, and when they finally got accustomed to how the CDM worked, uh, the market went south on them. So I think it might be uh, something that actually broadens their ability to participate in a, in a meaningful way. So, so as I look forward to uh, the next decade, that's one piece that I would like to see. And I think um, as I reflect on the morning, you can look at all of this as a, as a movie. And was that movie a romance as Benedict thought it was? Or was it a comedy? that some people outside of this room probably think it was? Or was it an action-adventure or a thriller? I think it was action-adventure. Right now, I think we're at the intermission waiting for the next, waiting for the sequel, maybe. Um, so I'm hoping that we get to see the action and adventure stage once again, because I think that was a, a real part of the power of the past 10 years. Thank you. Thanks very much, Dirk, for giving your perspective. So I now turn to that person that was almost introducing before. I think for him we would really need a thunder because he is the one who has helped creating trading programs in the 70s or 80s in the United States and who is now spending a lot of time to create the trading program of the future in China. So you really spend more than 10 years in creating trading programs around the world. So Dan Dudek from the Environmental Defense Fund, what is the one major thing that you would think we should think about in Europe for our denature? Thank you very much, Peter. And I'd like to thank you all for and the opportunity to be here with you. Um, I feel a bit like a um, distant relative who has been traveling or living abroad for a long time and has come back to visit with the family. Um, and perhaps uh, uh, that distance will give me a little bit of uh, perspective in terms of what I might um, say here today. It's been about 20 years since I was last at the EUI. I had a 
one-week teaching assignment here on emissions trading, of all things, as you might imagine. Um, my wife, this is before we had children, my wife was enjoying the delights of Florence for that time while I was here, and uh, anyway, it was a marvelous time. It has been a phenomenal adventure. It has not stopped being an adventure. Um, and I think, uh, as many of you know, and as Peter said, I've been otherwise occupied in, in China. But coming from that Chinese perspective, I really need to say that something that's been emphasized here, which is that I don't think there's been enough celebration about what you have achieved in 10 years. Um, for sure, in the family, there were always discussions about differences and points of view or opinion about what has happened. But I think the reality is that the EU ETS is an incredible innovation in global governance, particularly in the environmental sphere. Um, I think it has been an inspiration to many around the world. I don't know of any emissions trading system that has not thought about, considered, and been um, advised by the EU ETS and its experiences. Um, however, I don't, while you've set a very high bar in that regard, I don't think you have told the story effectively enough externally to the rest of the world. I think it's a mixed message. And I think uh, it's important to understand and address that because I think that the EU remains the global leader in climate. And to a significant extent, it does have to do with a rather remarkable decade-long commitment to the ETS. Since I'm an economist, I can only think about three broad levers to address the dimensions of the challenge that um, Dirk was recounting for us. And that's, you know, first, systemic measures like carbon prices generated through emissions trading systems. Second will be altering the rate of growth of demand for energy, particularly to the extent that it is not derived from clean energy. And lastly is the substitution of no or low carbon fuels um, in the overall system. In the case of the first lever, um, we are certainly talking about uh, emissions trading systems that are not global in scope. And as a result, those engender a whole set of concerns about competitiveness, and I think that these have been leakage, if you will, and these have been exacerbated, of course, by the economic crisis and the downturn. Um, I think, though, there is a question here, and the question is, do CO2 costs really worsen the level playing field? How, to, and to what extent? I think there's a need for some real um, evidence to be developed on that question. I also think that we are now in a bottom-up world, a world in which individually, nationally, determined commitments are the reality that we're facing going toward Paris. And I think we'll be in a multipolar market for some time, um, certainly at least till uh, probably 2030 or, or beyond. And I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I think it's very important um, to encourage the development of these national systems to actually try to do what we can to accelerate the development of these national systems, uh, get them up and running, and then after that happens, worry a little bit more about 
what their characteristics are and whether they are suitable and compatible for uh, linking or integration or not. I think um, here, recognizing the fact that of the economic crisis uh, and the impact on carbon prices, that those have been much lower than expected. I think that, um, that there's, there's been this clash between the need to provide long-term price signals and the challenge of managing the burden, the economic burden or perceived economic burden on, on participants. And I think this has resulted of necessity in a focus short-term on reducing supplies. I think this also has had the unintended consequence of increasing policy uncertainty. I think a number of people have uh, referenced that in the discussions today. And I think that while these fairness arguments are very difficult to manage, I think the point to a long-term policy, such as the ETS, is in fact creating that certainty for um, investment. I think some analysis done by some EDF colleagues suggests that current market participants are basically not forward-looking enough in terms of their investments, given the nature and challenge of the ultimate direction here. The result being that they are, their discount rates are too high in terms of uh, investment. And rather than thinking about the surplus emissions, as a burden, I think the surplus emissions are in fact a necessary bank for those future obligations that are coming rapidly. I mean, a number of participants have commented on how fast that is being drawn down and burnt through. So uh, returning to a position of, of uh, increasing the level of policy certainty, reducing that discount rate in terms of investment, and increasing the size of the optimal bank I think is quite important in terms of uh, the signaling here. So uh, if in fact um, we want to do that, I think um, partly we can address that through the fact of uh, this question of international participation. And I think that is changing. It's changing particularly with the developments in China. I think Paris also will help in terms of changing uh, those expectations that it is just a um, EU system alone. But I think um, over the next decade or two, I think it's important to maximize the incentives from the ETS itself, to think about how to strengthen uh, the ETS. And I think I would like to focus on strengthening the second lever, which is changing the rate of growth of demand by focusing on energy efficiency. And here, Price certainly is one driver for efficiency, and price, the carbon price, is going to be a function of scarcity, and that certainly is the province of, of, uh, of governments. But I think in maximizing incentives, we can look back to the history of emissions trading, some of which has been mentioned here about offsetting, bubbling, netting, etc. And I think that one way to increase the price calculation, particularly for industry, is to change the ratio of tons submitted for compliance purposes. So, for example, um, you might start in 2020 with a current one-to-one. -one. In 2030, go to two-for-one. 2040 uh, or 2050, increase that to three-to-one. I think to compensate for that added stringency, what you can do is allow those same industries to mine and extract energy efficiency 
and consequent carbon reductions from their supply chain. This has been something which has been pioneered quite a bit using the leverage of the market power of those uh, big suppliers, particularly to get reductions for sources that are not otherwise covered in the ETS. So I think if we did this, you would improve expectations uh, about the sustainability of the ETS itself by increasing the certainty of these future obligations. I think also that uh, supporting and encouraging the adoption of mission trading systems abroad is another way to address the problem of lack of international action. Um, the issue of co-benefits has been mentioned today, and I think it's absolutely key to be measuring and reporting on those co-benefits internationally, because those were a significant driver in China's decision in relation to addressing and developing a national carbon market. Um, so I think that current developments indeed are quite positive. I would simply urge you to uh, build on what you have so successfully accomplished to date. Thank you again for the opportunity to be here. Thanks very much, Dan, for this perspective. That takes us even further than 10 years when you talk about 2040, 2050, about those exchange rates. So the next uh, panelist I'd like to invite to share his views about the one major change he would advocate is Felix Mattes, who is the research coordinator of the Öko Institute in Berlin. And Germany is, so to say, the one has, who has the biggest market share in the European emissions market in terms of the emissions scope. You know, your German perspectives always matter a lot when decisions are made in process on the ETS. So, Felix, the floor is yours. Yeah, thank you. And as a good German, I have not a clear answer to a clear question. My answer will be uh, the key change is to implement a new management structures to balance the interactions between three major challenges. And I think that will be my main message. And I would, share, I would like to share four short thoughts on the new quality of uncertainties, on the fact that the introduction of the MSR is much more than a short-term and temporary fix of a short-term problem. The third thought was we, that we need a much more rational approach to policy mix. And the fourth thought is why this is all about China. And so the first is, I think, when I look back to the time when I entered the ETS debate, and if I compare uh, my certainties and my beliefs uh, from this time, then the result is depressing because after, uh, let's say, in 15 years of the debate on ETS, uh, I need to state there is a new quality of multi-level uncertainties. Uh, the price fluctuations uh, from 2000 to 2015 have been bigger than anyone assumed. And one should make the thought experiment what level of a carbon tax we would have fixed in 2003 and how effective this level of the carbon tax would be today. The second is the huge uh, dynamics on technical innovation, especially if it comes to renewables, honestly not driven by the price of carbon, but by other instruments. But this has changed the market structure of the electricity market significantly and will change this much more. And so the technological achievements uh, are on the, and, the, and the related uncertainties are, are, are significant. Third, 
the policy framework has, has emerged much more dynamically as we thought, as well as in the European Union, as well as globally, and as much more than we thought in 2003. And last but not least, uh, the macroeconomic environment has been much more volatile than everybody was able to imagine in 2003. And the question is how to deal with these multi-level uncertainties and the answer from an EU, EU ETS perspective and from a climate policy and energy policy perspective is we need to highlight two major issues. We need flexible and robust instruments and the ETS is a flexible instrument, it's, a responsive, it's, an, it's an instrument of responsive carbon pricing and in this world of uncertainties we need on the one hand responsive carbon pricing uh, but in a much more robust framework and the second answer is that monoculture of instruments is not the right answer to multi-level uncertainties and so we need portfolios and we need to have rational approaches how to develop and how to manage these portfolios. The second thought is, uh, why, what is, what is the new situation uh, after the MSR has been introduced? And I would say this is a significant change, it's a significant transformation of the EU ETS because we are now in a world of a hybrid instrument. If you look on the MSR economically, it's nothing else than a very smart price floor. It's a scarcity-based price floor. And so we are now in the world of a hybrid instrument, which provides some robustness by the price floor and uh, maintains the flexibility of the pricing mechanism. And that is important. That's the good news, the, the, the bad news is, or the challenging news is we are in the pilot phase of this hybrid instrument and we need to put many efforts uh, to fine-tune the system in the upcoming years and we should take this challenge extremely seriously because it is, we are in a pilot phase of the hybrid instruments and from my belief, at least interim instruments to maintain this transition uh, on a national level is an, is an valid approach. The third thought is, uh, on the policy portfolios. And I think what we really learned uh, during the last years that we need for the policy goal of a deep dark decarbonization. And we are, we are talking about deep decarbonization, not 30%, not 20%, we are talking about 80, 90%. So, and there we need other approaches uh, to, uh, to, to the policy mix because the the discourse here has been uh, uh, dominated by two extreme constituencies. The first constituency was those uh, were those who are who were addicted and are addicted to technology-specific policies, and hated generic pricing policies. And honestly, they had they, they have. If you look to the renewables, they, they have a point. So it's, 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 uh, it, is, it has been non-unsuccessful. But the bad news is, and that is from my country, we have rolled out, we rolled out uh, renewables significantly. The problem was the emissions didn't decrease. And we will, dis we, 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 will, we will experience the same situation if Chinese climate policy will be successful. That will have impacts on the hard coal prices. And that will have impacts on 
the climate results. And so we need responses, we need, uh, uh, we need a demand side uh, uh, complement to the supply side of, the, of rolling out clean, uh, clean, clean technologies. The second extreme constituency has been the ETS only. We introduce a price on carbon, scrap all the rest, and then uh, everything will be fine. And I think uh, uh, that, uh, that, uh, that, that, has, well, that ignores the limited role of carbon pricing for, let's say, the transformative investments, uh, and, uh, and, uh, but has an enormous role for safeguarding the climate result, because in the end of the day it's about emission, emission decrease. Uh, and we need uh, to realize that the ETS is not only a climate policy tool. I think what we really see, ETS is the dispatch element of a market design, and frankly, the continued free allocation to East, German, uh, to East European power generators is nothing else than a capacity payment which is not treated as a capacity payment. And so it has an energy policy market, uh, market, market element which we need, which we need uh, somehow to consider. And so what the, the real challenge is to find a portfolio of instruments uh, uh, leaving the, the, the technology-specific only approach and the ETS only approach behind and to have a more rational approach to policy mix which goes beyond, it is only about ETS and the other extreme is we make arbitrary choices on policy instruments and then we label this as a policy mix. This is, this, this is the challenge. And why? Uh, and, and, and somehow this is, this, is, this is the part that we need, the supply side of climate policy and the demand side. The supply side is increasing the triggering, the clean investments, uh, uh, but there is also the demand side to limit the emissions. And there, uh, without any doubt, the ETS plays a role. Why is this all about China? And this is my fourth, that's my fourth thought. The key debate for the next year will to bring the Chinese ETS online. That it will be introduced in 2016, it shall be fully for operational in 2019, and it is about the global carbon market, it is about the perspective of linking, it's about the future of the, of the carbon leakage debate, etc., etc. And so China is the, is the key battleground for carbon pricing, not only on a European or a Chinese level, it is the key battleground on the, on the carbon pricing on the, on the, on the, on the global level. And the interesting point is that all the challenges we faced in the European Union and which we tried to fix with the transformation to a hybrid instrument, with the need for developing policy mix, uh, will be significant for China, and I work a lot of on, in China at the moment, at a totally different scale, but with the same challenges. And so the European Union emissions trading scheme will be again the pilot phase and the laboratory for solutions which will also be uh, of enormous importance for China if it comes to the policy mix. Uh, we have just the crazy, uh, crazy experience that we have this selective carbon price proposal in Germany which should direct the, all the outdated power plants. And we have enormous interest from China because they, they, they challenge the same problem. How to manage the exit game of the high carbon assets and how to deal with, the, how to deal, uh, with this uh, in the framework of a carbon pricing scheme. And the other point is, and that, that is all often ignored, we have a lot of experience how to, how to deal with carbon pricing in the framework of a liberalized energy market. 
but how to implement carbon pricing tools in a world, in a, in a system, which has no liberalized electricity market, which has no economic dispatch, which has no, which has no uh, wholesale market, and how to deal with this, this is a huge challenge. And there are clear answers, although this is an extremely complicated debate for the, for the Chinese situation, but we can provide some of the, some of the experiences uh, and the solutions we, we have made, even for the complicated system that the Chinese ETS is linked to a restructuring of the Chinese energy sector. And that is very complicated, uh, and we have some, some interesting experiences uh, for that. And so, in, in the end, uh, we continue to be the front-running of flexible and robust carbon pricing within the portfolio of instruments which, instruments which can reflect uh, these multi-level uncertainties, which are at a certain level for the Europeans, which are on a much larger scale uh, uh, relevant for, for the Chinese. And we are those who have uh, uh, some degrees of freedoms uh, to experiment with this stuff, but we should uh, we, should, we should clearly formulate these challenges uh, of this coordination issue and of this, of, this, of, this, of this dealing with flexible pricing instruments in an, un, in an environment which is characterized by many, many multi-level uncertainties. And so uh, the ETS and China will probably be the two pillars of a future climate policy if this policy shall have a significant pricing element. And that is uh, an interesting thing in terms of effectiveness, of efficiency, etc., etc. But it's not the only way. There are plan Bs. They will probably be less effective and, lo and, and less efficient and therefore will build much bigger uh, barriers to and to and roll out of decarbonization, uh, our deep decarbonization climate policies. Thank you very much. Thanks very much, Felix, for offering us your perspective. The next panelist I'd like to call upon to uh, introduce her favorite major change is uh, Dorette Corbe, who already, you already heard this morning, and not only has a history as being the shadow rapporteur <coughs> at the time the ETS directive was created in, in the European Parliament, but she is now very much involved and has a very practical perspective as being the chair of the Dutch Emissions Authority, which is the authority charged with implementing the ETS on a daily basis in the Netherlands. So, Dorette, the floor is yours. Well, thank you, <coughs> Peter, and thank you for the invitation to be here. It's um, uh, very good to talk about the future of the ETS. I would like to <coughs> raise, if you, uh, if you allow me, two points. It is, uh, the first point is innovation, and the second point is complexity. Uh, let me start with uh, the point innovation. So, this morning, um, we first celebrated the big achievement of creating uh, the emission trading system. Uh, and then in the second session, uh, we also concluded uh, that maybe um, uh, the ETS is still sleeping, uh, that some more ambition uh, is needed. And um, uh, I fully agree with that, uh, more ambition is needed. There is, um, uh, in fact, not a good plan B. Taxation is not a plan B. Uh, the alternative for ETS is a command and control legislation, and it would be very um, uh, difficult to create this command and control legislation. So I think uh, the best choice we should make, make is to, to, to make the best of the, the current ETS. So um, more ambition is then needed, and how to create such an ambition? Of course, it's the, the, the pricing of CO2, so we need um, uh, a higher price of, of CO2, 
and then um, uh, it will be more effective. This can be done quite easily by lowering the cap more fastly, uh, more steeply, uh, uh, but then um, uh, always uh, all in this room with some political experience, we know that you run immediately in some political di uh, difficulties. There's a lot of lobbying um, uh, against uh, this and um, uh, carbon leakage is a, is a real problem. So um, uh, the dilemma is um, if, you, uh, if the carbon prices rise by measures, uh, then uh, the call for carbon leakage becomes much, much stronger. And then consequently, uh, the free allowances um, uh, will, be, uh, will be more. And then the impact uh, of these uh, measures is already uh, gone. So this is uh, really the dilemma. So the European Council uh, was uh, perhaps quite right to address uh, the issue of carbon leakage. Uh, but the European Council um, uh, failed, as was uh, spoken also with the Flemish uh, colleague who is sitting there. The European Council failed to address innovation leakage, or if you like, technology leakage. Um, uh, around us, in, in China, Korea, United States, new technology is developed, uh, and uh, also uh, uh, energy-efficient technology, green technology, and I think it's very important that we keep up and uh, that we do not allow any innovation leakage or um, uh, technology leakage. So how to escape from the uh, dilemma? I think um, it's very important um, uh, to take the measures that um, uh, make the price higher. At the same time, when it's needed, uh, that we install mechanisms uh, to, um, uh, to give back uh, the, the revenues to the companies under the conditions that they invest in uh, clean technology, uh, in energy efficiency or whatever. So the revenues should be used to create national innovation funds uh, that, um, uh, that help the companies uh, to, um, to create innovation, to, um, uh, to design new technologies. And with these innovation funds, I think uh, we can uh, close the innovation gap with, uh, uh, with countries around us. I think it's a very important measure. Of course, we have now uh, already the uh, European Innovation Fund, but this is not um, uh, a good alternative for small companies. Small companies um, uh, have troubles to, um, uh, to, um, uh, to, to use these instruments. Uh, of course, there are some small companies who manage to do so, but the majority of them uh, do not have the, the faintest idea that uh, some instruments like this uh, exist. Um, with this, we uh, come to the, uh, the problem of uh, small and medium-sized companies. And this problem is called um, complexity. Uh, as um, uh, the board of the, uh, UP, uh, the, the Dutch Emission Authority, uh, has issued a kind of survey uh, among uh, the, the companies who are uh, obliged to, to participate in the ETS. Uh, we received um, 120 um, um, uh, letters from, from companies. Our questions to the companies was, how uh, can you um, uh, mention any measures that make your life easier, uh, that make the system less uh, complex, and to lessen the administrative burden of the emission trading system. Um, we um, uh, received well, around 50 suggestions for measures. Uh, we selected them uh, on two criteria. Uh, first of all, 
uh, it should be within the existing uh, system. So, uh, of course, it could be much more easy uh, to say uh, we auction 100% of all um, uh, emission allowance, and that's very simple. Uh, but uh, politically, it's not very possible. So we, do not, we did not do these uh, suggestions. We also t took out the suggestions that um, undermined the reliability of the system and the, uh, the, the robustness of the system. Uh, because all the complexity of ETS is also there to protect um, uh, the trust, trustworthiness, uh, the reliability of the system. So um, that left us with um, uh, 28 measures. Um, who, um, uh, uh, that, uh, some are uh, really kind of small, small issues, some are larger issues, but these 25 measures, I think um, uh, most of them will definitely contribute uh, to a better and less complex, uh, sometimes even more robust uh, ETS uh, systems. I mentioned a few of them, and um, um, first of all, it's the monitoring process that's very complicated. Uh, it's very complicated for uh, small and medium-sized uh, companies. So we suggest uh, to, um, uh, to replace it for, for general rules for small comp smaller companies, which have, after all, very, uh, um, uh, very limited uh, emissions. And uh, we suggest to monitor simple processes, uh, also um, to, to have for simple processes, also simple monitoring. Uh, you can easily... Uh, do with uh, the gas bills or the gas fluctuations, and instead of do the whole monitoring um, thing. Uh, then um, we say also that um, uh, the um, compliance um, uh, things can be much more easy. For companies, it's very difficult, especially if they are not traders. If they once a year, they have to go to the register and have to, um, uh, to deliver the allowances. And that is um, uh, difficult for these companies. We had indeed some tragic cases where companies failed to do the, uh, the business. So we had to have a penalty of 100 uh, euro per ton CO2, which is really a dramatic thing for these, um, these companies. So make it more easy or make uh, it possible to do this automatically, like in banking systems, you can, um, um, uh, you can mandate uh, companies to uh, um, uh, to take money from your account automatically, and this should be made possible also in the, uh, in the register, especially for, uh, for small companies. Then there's um, uh, the, uh, the product benchmarks. Um, we suggest to, to extend the scope of the, the product benchmarks uh, so that we can get rid of the heat benchmarks. Heat benchmarks are, as you know, very complex, very, very difficult. Uh, and that is um, uh, in, the, uh, in the allocation process that would be really um, a relief. If you make the allocation process a little bit more um, um, uh, user-friendly, so to say, then it's also possible uh, uh, to, uh, to shorten uh, the trading period to, for instance, three years. Uh, if that is the case, uh, if you have a shortening of the, the, uh, the trading period, then you can get rid of the, uh, uh, of the obligation to, um, uh, to have significant uh, changes uh, announced. So this, is, uh, this announcement of significant, significant changes is also very burdensome. So this can be, um, uh, can be deleted. So, so that would also be a very good um, uh, measure. Uh, there are some more um, uh, measures in the report. Um, the report is uh, not yet uh, formal. It, will be, um, uh, it will, will be presented to the Dutch Parliament in two weeks. 
but it's my pleasure now to give the first informal exemplar already now to Jos Delbeken, and I hope it will have some uh, impact on future legislation. Thank you for your attention. Thanks very much, Torret, for offering your perspective. And while we have the handing handover ceremony, we continue with our panel that we, we have enough time for discussion. I would like to invite the next panelist, Andre Strecker, uh, who bring in a private sector perspective. He comes from, uh, he works for Chess, which is a major power company, which is very active in many member states in the east of the European Union. So Andre, the floor is yours for your favorite major change for the next 10 years. Okay, thank you, Peter, for, for the introduction, and uh, thank you also for the opportunity to participate at this conference. Uh, in my five minutes, I would like to tackle the issue which has been already raised uh, before the lunch, and it's the mutual overlap between the different cl European climate policies. Uh, when talking about the future uh, of the EU ETS, I should probably start with mentioning that I'm really glad that in the near future, we will very probably have the MSR implemented because I think that the MSR is a great step forward. On the other hand, uh, I some, sometimes have an impression that uh, the MSR is perceived as, uh, as a sort of universal tool, as a tool which will solve every problem in the future. Uh, I think that the MSR is a necessary condition to, to bring the EU ETS back to equilibrium and to stabilize it, but I have some doubts whether it's really the sufficient condition to do, to do it. Uh, you know, I think that the MSR is an ex, ex post tool, so it's perfectly able to remove the current oversupply, it's perfectly able to, to smoothen the cyclical uh, fluctuations of the European economy. But what if the oversupply becomes structural? In other words, uh, what if uh, the demand in the EU ETS decreases with the same pace as the supply, or even quicker? Well, of course, the, the MSR will eventually bring or push the market back to the equilibrium. But is the equilibrium our ultimate goal? I don't think so. I think that the crucial question is whether the EU ETS will still able to provide a sufficient incentive to decarbonize and to invest into new modern technologies. And I'm afraid that uh, it wouldn't be, wouldn't be able to do so, because uh, why would you have any CO2 price, why would you have any incentives uh, if you don't need to make any effort to decarbonize? Uh, another question is whether this structural oversupply uh, is a real thing, whether uh, we can imagine it. Well, from our modeling, it's not our base case. But on the other hand, if we combine the ambitious uh, implementation of other European climate policies and, the, and some weaker economic growth, I think it's, it's possible. Now, <clears throat> Uh, we all know that uh, these other European climate policies like uh, renewables or um, energy efficiency has obviously, have ob obviously different objectives, like for example uh, energy security in, in case of uh, the renewables or uh, energy affordability in case of the uh, energy efficiency. The decarbonization comes as a byproduct. 
On the other hand, uh, these complementary policies are not able to provide the all necessary decarbonization, which is defined by the roadmap, roadmap 2050. Uh, we cannot decrease our energy consumption to zero, and we cannot produce all our, our electricity only with renewables. Even the roadmap 2050 uh, assumes some production, some generation uh, in the fossil fuels with the CCS. So that means that we will still need some, some incentive to, to decarbonize this remaining uh, energy sector and the whole industrial sector. And uh, here comes our proposal. Uh, let's, uh, let's separate uh, the different uh, clim European energy climate tools and uh, let's, uh, uh, let's, let's adjust the EUTS cap by, by uh, withdrawing uh, the emission safe thanks to the uh, renewable support. In practice, uh, we know the volume of, uh, uh, of generation, of renewables generation uh, produced thanks to the uh, subsidized renewables, and we also know the uh, average emission factor of the remaining generation. So we can just multiply these two values, and we will know the volume of emission saved thanks to the uh, renewable support. And then once we adjust the EUETS cap uh, by this uh, decarbonization achieved with other tools other than the EUETS. The EUETS would be able to focus on the classical generation and on the industrial sector. So that would be our proposal and thank you. Thanks very much Andre for offering your perspective for one major change following the guidance I've suggested. Last but not least, I would like to hand over now to Professor Carlo Carraro, who I think within the academic community, I don't need to introduce Carlo, neither in Europe nor in the rest of the world. He is one of the most distinguished environmental economists across the globe. Uh, he's a professor in Venice, but is known in, and active in many other places around the world, including, I understand, the next couple of months at Stanford University. So, Carlo, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, and first of all, let me congratulate uh, on the one side, Xavier and uh, Birgit and um, Jos and Peter Zaffel for having organized this meeting. Quite, quite useful, uh, even though it was supposed to be a ceremony for uh, the 10th anniversary in reality, it has been full of good comments, remarks and, and suggestions. Uh, um, I'm going to go back to the issue of, uh, of uh, overlapping instruments. Uh, of course, being the last time, I must repeat something that's been uh, already said but I hope to uh, provide at the end a, a proposal. Because the, the, this issue of developing instruments is, is quite relevant. We want to understand the future of, of the UETS. The, the EU decided to uh, go for, with uh, three guns for one target, or uh, three stones for a bird, because uh, in reality this is what happened, which is fine, because only in test books uh, uh, there is one instrument that can achieve uh, one target in a, in a perfect uh, way. But uh, we should not be surprised about the outcome. When we go with three, uh, three uh, guns for one target, with three instruments for one target, the outcome is one of the, of the instruments may be a residual one. And given the, the characteristics of the other instruments so for uh, renewables and for energy efficiency, what happened is that the UETS became the residual tool, the one that fixes what remains of uh, 
uh, emission reductions when the other, the other uh, two instruments have done their own, uh, their own job. So the price was lower, and, and our simulation showed that uh, the, the, the change is quite relevant, 10 euros per ton of carbon. Without the, the targets on, uh, on renewables, uh, the uh, EU ETS price, the carbon price, would, be, would have been 10, 10 euros higher. Uh, and, and everyone would have said, oh, fine, that's great, but, but they may not, because then what matters in this setting is the target. And if the target, what matters is only the cap, then it's fine. Whether we achieve the cap with a high carbon price or with a low carbon price and other instruments on renewables, energy efficiency, and so on, it should not matter. We achieve the target. But this is not the feeling that we uh, have here in, uh, in this room. We, all of us seem to believe that a high price signal, a relevant price signal, is important. And if the relevant price signal is important, we should understand why, given that the cap has been, has been achieved. Probably because we want some long-term or longer-term policy, uh, in particular to induce uh, investments in innovation, investments uh, in, uh, in long-term uh, solutions like CCS or other solutions for CO2 removals that are very important for um, climate policy in the long term. And since uh, we, can, we cannot have, a, we cannot have a, a tax, and you're right, the plan B cannot be a, cannot be a carbon tax, then we try to mimic the behavior of a tax using, using the EOETS. If this is the strategy, and it seems to me quite clear that this is the strategy, and, and the market stability reserve goes into this, into this direction. It's exactly a way to offsetting the negative or the dampening effects of uh, uh, policy on renewables energy efficiency on uh, the carbon price. It's a way to stabilizing the price, but as was just said, it's likely to be uh, insufficient. Insufficient because it doesn't get rid of the, of the excess supply. Uh, it just modifies the, the, the cap over time, but the, the total amount of emission reductions remain the same. Um, in, and so if there is a structural imbalance, this doesn't solve the problem. Um, it, is, uh, it is probably in, insufficient because there are many other events, surprises, uh, technological innovations, uh, changes in the economic systems or uh, whatever that can affect the, the, the carbon price. So, and there is already another reason why it is insufficient. In the next 10 years, it will uh, do the job to get rid of the, of the excess uh, allowances that are already are in the market, and it will take time to solve the, that, that problem before solving other problems. So, uh, the proposal. I think that Joss was right. I mean, the issue is a governance one. So the old story that I try to summarize briefly uh, leads at the end to a, a governance uh, problem. And uh, this morning, uh, Danny mentioned a, a comparison, a parallelism uh, between uh, the EU ETS price, the carbon price in the EU ETS, uh, which is the single, the unique price for all uh, EU countries, with uh, the euro, which is the other case of a, of a, of a single price, even though for, for a limited number of countries. And again, I would like to continue with this idea, and this is something I've been uh, telling for a while, but I think what we need is something very similar to the EU central bank for this kind of market. It's a governance issue. We need something which is able to govern a very complex market, which is now a, a tiny one if we compare what, what the, the EU central bank is doing and, uh, and the carbon prices. 
the common price market. But in the long term, this is not the case. I mean, all the simulations show us that the, the, this market is going to be bigger and bigger over time, which is, again, logical if we are very ambitious in terms of uh, emission reduction. And if this is the case, the governance problems will increase over time, and we need something which can act promptly with flexibility, autonomy with respect to the lobbies of, of, energy, of, all, of the energy sector of any kind, uh, influences uh, from governments uh, from uh, uh, different countries with different interests, and so exactly in the same way in which the EU Central Bank is able to control the price of, uh, of uh, the euro, the value of the euro, well, interest rates, without announcing any kind of scheme. I mean, the market stability reserve is sort of a clumsy way to deal with the issue because it's, it, you announce what you want to do with a rich scheme of interventions, whenever, whenever, whereas in this case you need a lot of flexibility. Of course, not in the next two, three, or five years, but certainly in 10 years' time we need uh, a better governance, uh, governance tool with the same kind of uh, power and flexibility that the EU Central Bank has for the, for the euro. Thanks very much, Carlo. I will in a minute invite first panelists to react on what has been said and then I'll invite all the others that we have again as in the morning, uh, as stimulating a debate as we had in the morning. But let me try to, to draw some preliminary conclusions of what I've heard from the six panelists, the ideas they have put on the table. In a way, I see three themes emerging around which we can discuss a bit further, plus any other ideas that, that people in the room would like to, be, to add to the table. I think the first theme was the theme about how do we take the ETS beyond Europe, the international carbon market, the linking, what is the ETS, some questions we could look at, is the ETS sufficiently attractive for other countries to seek linkages with it, uh, other schemes sufficiently interesting for us, for Europe to seek linkage, linkages with, what governance do we need to scale this up beyond Europe if we go beyond a multinational trading system, beyond the European borders? So that's the first set of things I've heard uh, quite a few interventions alluding to. The second point was the point about innovation and ETS and the carbon price. Dorette, uh, it was, no, it was, I think, I think yes, it was in fact Dorette saying, are we running the risk of innovation leakage, technology leakage? Is the EU ETS doing enough in order to stimulate and promote innovation, which is very, very instrumental in terms of where we need to go over the long term to decarbonize in a credible fashion our economies? What more could we do, for example, with auction revenue or other, other ideas in terms of how we could include the innovative benefits of the ETS? And then I have a third issue I've heard some of you alluding to was how can we best manage and optimize the interaction of the ETS with other complementary policies. This is an issue that has been debated quite a bit in recent years in Europe. Uh, we need all those, we need a number of instruments. Climate policy is not a one, one problem, one instrument issue to solve with. We need a number of instruments. How can we, so to say, optimize the firepower of those various uh, policy tools we have at hand? So that's the third theme that I've heard out of the interventions, but as I said first, if there are any reactions from the side of the panelists before we go and open it up to the wider round table on, on those themes and maybe some other ideas people would like to bring on the table. Yes, Andre. Yes, thank you. Uh, I would like to comment on the uh, linking of different, e, uh, of different uh, ETS schemes. Uh, I think that from the economic point of view, it makes a lot of sense in terms of rationality and efficiency. 
Uh, on the other hand, uh, when my manager reads it in the newspaper, his first question will be, what is the price impact? And for the time being, uh, I wouldn't be able to answer him because uh, I, I don't know whether the EUTS would be flooded by some cheap credits or uh, if, on the other hand, it would uh, create additional, some additional demand into EUTS which would lead prices up. So I think it's a good idea, but we should be very careful uh, with, the, uh, with the framework. Thank you. Thanks. I think I have two more panelists who want to react, and then we go to the wider audience. So, Dorette, you wanted to react, and then Felix. Uh, yeah, I agree, of course, with your three uh, teams, but um, um, I would like to comment uh, that the, uh, the second and the third team are, of course, interrelated. Uh, so, if the ETS works excellent, uh, if it has an ambitious level, uh, if it um, uh, uh, does uh, uh, provide an incentive uh, for invest in uh, renewable energy, uh, for instance, and uh, do a lot of new technologies, energy efficiency, then you can, can, can get rid of a lot of legislation uh, in the European Union um, um, to command and control these things. So, um, uh, if the, the ETS works uh, optimal, uh, then the renewable energy directive can disappear. Uh, of course. Uh, so these two, uh, these, uh, two themes are in fact two, two sides of one coin. And um, uh, of course it's uh, good not to um, discuss now any further the, the, the issue of complexity. Um, I would like to uh, say once more that I consider it as a very important issue because uh, if we do not reduce complexity, um, uh, I think public and private support for the whole system uh, will also uh, reduce. So, reducing complexity, we do not need to discuss it now, but it's a real uh, task, I think, we have to achieve. Thanks, I think no doubt that complex, avoiding complexity, or as already Frank said in the morning, the value of simplicity is something that should guide us and has been guiding us. I think we need to constantly, every, every couple of, of conferences, remind ourselves how important it is and then don't forget it in the daily decision-making. Felix, did I get it right? You also wanted to react, yeah? Yeah, uh, two short comments. The first is, I think we, we should be honest. We will need these remuneration schemes for the clean investment for a long time and ever. If we have exceeded the 30% renewables, then all every time if the wind is blowing and the sun is shining, the price, the wholesale price will be, will be zero, whatever the carbon price is and you, one would need extremely high carbon prices to get rid of these remuneration schemes. And therefore, we should accept that we will need these, these instruments for a long term because we have also market design failures. The second is on linking. I think this is a long-term perspective. But uh, frankly, the only case of immediate linking has been uh, probably Australia and the European Union. If, the Chinese ATS, which is the major case for linking, has a long way to go. And there are some, some standard failures, and they will have a pilot phase, they will have a learning, a very bloody learning process. And, and, uh, and I think the linking issue will, be, uh, will, 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 will become important after the Chinese system has settled. But that is probably not the case uh, for the next five to ten years. What we need to do 
is to raise the awareness for the DETS designers what design elements are no-goes for linking. And I think this is, this, is the, this is the issue for the next 10 years, to raise this awareness for linking uh, uh, instead of think about immediate uh, direct linking of these schemes. That, has been, that would have been possible for, for Australia because it is an OECD country, uh, comparable challenges, comparable settings, uh, but for the, emerging, for, the, for the emerging emissions trading schemes, it is, it is probably the, the, not the next step, so non the third next step, uh, not ignoring that we need to raise the awareness on, on, on the design implications of linking. Thanks, and now we start going around the table. I've noted all the flags that are up, and I will try to have them in the order as I was spotting them. So first, Luis. Thanks very much. Uh, <clears throat> we spent quite a lot of time in the uh, session before lunch talking about the uh, mistakes that we learned from uh, in the UK emissions trading scheme uh, and uh, others, including phase one of the EU ETS. And I would have thought that the, uh, the obvious mistake that uh, we've been making is this uh, notion that we should have a, uh, a renewables target. Indeed, countries should unilaterally promote renewables uh, above, um, uh, above other technology. Because it makes it, um, uh, it's, it's, it's a crazily expensive way to reduce emissions, um, if that's what the objective was. Uh, and it has unintended consequences. One of those, um, ironically, is the, um, uh, is the reduction of coal prices and therefore incentivizing coal burn uh, and potentially causing leakage uh, in other parts of the world. Energy efficiency, there's some barriers to entry there, and I, I have some sensitivity um, to the need for promoting that. Um, but the idea of supplementarity, uh, I, I don't understand that because you have um, an emissions trading scheme and the objective is to, is to achieve the cap. Um, how you achieve the cap is, is almost completely irrelevant. Um, and so, of course, uh, to achieve uh, reductions for the whole economy, the whole economy should be in the EU ETS. And um, you know, the notion of closing coal-fired power stations arbitrarily um, uh, is, is quite remarkable. Um, the whole point of a price on carbon um, is to allow uh, the market to decide what technology it supports. Uh, and uh, what it doesn't. So if I were asked to answer the question, uh, what one thing would I like for the future, it is to set the target, roll in the whole economy, and leave it well alone. And I think the Commission have, um, uh, have done that, uh, uh, has stuck to that um, uh, ideal as much as they possibly can. Um, and I think a lot of the criticism this morning um, about the EU ETS is, is misplaced because of other policies that have interfered that we should learn from. Um, and indeed, the market responded extremely well to a recession. If we'd had an arbitrary carbon tax um, uh, stuck at uh, 20 euros while the whole economy went into the pan, um, I think we'd be having a very different um, uh, discussion today. So keep it simple. I completely agree with that and roll in the whole economy. Thank you, Louis. Next, I would like to invite Jean-Yves to intervene. Thank you, Peter. So, I think there have been a lot of very interesting remarks in, in the panel and that show that the complexity of the terrain we are today. And I think that if we want to move forward uh, in a rational manner, maybe we have to pay attention to two things. Uh, the first is the governance of the different policies. 
we know that there are different policies that address different issues, renewables, energy efficiency, you have the market liberalization, you have the, the, carbon, uh, the carbon market. So all the, these policies interact together and we have really to pay attention to the governance of all that. It has been said by Felix very smartly and so I think that before looking at the UETS, look at the, the, the landscape of the different policies in order to articulate them together because after all we want to decarbonize the economy at the least cost. So it's not only the carbon market, it's, it's everything. So we, we have to, to pay attention to this governance. If I'm coming to EUTS now, which should be the, the cornerstone policy, uh, uh, we, we, we have to face one, one problem, which is that the cap we are setting, uh, it's a cap which is set on a period of time which is not a long term, which is a mid-term. So the real cap the, uh, the actors see is something which, is, which was framed in 2020, which will be framed in 2030, and we know that there is an expectation that something will follow, but which, which is not framed as a cap, really. And, and, and so if, I, if I'm balancing now the, uh, the economy behind, uh, the price is shaping mostly uh, with short-term marginal cost. And in the power sector, which is the power sector which is framing the price today, uh, this is really driven by the fuel cost, coal and gas. These are short-term marginal costs. And we would like that the price is driven by the long-term marginal costs, which are the full cost of technology we are expecting to put, uh, to put in place in order to decarbonize the economy. So if you want that the price is more attracted by the long-term marginal cost, you need to address this question either by if we are capable to have politically a long-term cap, yes, but I think it will be difficult. So maybe there is a role to have some governance of the MSR in order to reconcile these, these short-term and long-term needs because we need really to uh, to have the attraction on the long-term marginal cost, which will, make, which will make the change in the decision uh, for the investments. So this is something that we could look at, and because if the, I'm sure that the market stability reserve can remove the residues of all the other policies, and that will increase the price. But I'm not sure that we will reduce the cost. So I think that we should pay attention what, how we could reframe the MSR in the future in order that we can give this signal on the long term that we are not capable to put in place a cap in 2050. We know that there will be a cap in 2050, but we are not able to decide it politically today. Thank you, Shawif. Next one on my list is Bill Kite. Thank you. I'd just like to make two points, one of which is difficult technically and the other is difficult politically. The difficult technical one is I think we have to address directly looking at linking because whatever happens, linking will happen. It will either happen through a common instrument such as CDM or its successor or it will happen through the ingenuity of traders. And as an example, you can take the UK ETS and the Danish ETS, which are like chalk and cheese. They were totally different. 
and yet a trader, one of Dirk's colleagues found a way of trading between them by carrying out uh, parallel trades. So that's why I think we have to address it explicitly. But that's technical. I think the political one is we have vast auctioning revenues which are member states owned. How can we better utilize those to drive forward decarbonization and innovation? Thank you, Bill. I still have a very long list, but before I do that, a brief, a, a, let's pause very briefly because I would like to share with you two questions that some of those people watching us on the web have been sending in for this session. So I have one question from a private person who asks whether we think that the derogation in the next trading period still makes sense. I think what is meant with this is free allocation to power plants in, in some of the low-income member states. I think Felix has already offered a perspective to that. If any one of you who is going to speak next want to have some thoughts on this, so this is one of the questions. And then the second question comes from a person working with the community of the European railway and infrastructure companies uh, who is asking whether it isn't the right time to consider further developing the EU ETS by including all transport fuels in the ETS. So those two questions. Does free allocation in Eastern member states still make sense for the next decade? And shouldn't we think about including all transport fuels are two of those things that the people watching us on the web would be interested to have some discussion here as well. So with this as some inputs for further reflections, I'd like to hand over to Andre as the next speaker. Well, at, at least, Peter, we know that somebody's watching. I think that's, <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's positive, I think. Uh, look, I, I, I think looking in the crystal ball, uh, frankly, you know, 2000 and 2001, the, we had no idea where we we're going to be here right now and having this discussion. I think we imagined the world would be, I don't know, I think Dirk used the word of this nirvana, which we thought would be in the global market by now with all gases and all countries, and we're nowhere near that, but we're somewhere. So I think looking at the crystal ball is not, not, not easy. I, the one remark, first remark that I would make, I think that the EU has been, has been really a leader in the EUTS, and I think that there's nothing wrong in that, but I think you'll have to get used to be one maybe one of the big ones, but one among others. And I think that is a, a feeding loop where we'll continue to learn from others, and I think that's a very useful thing. You had a list, Peter, or, or, of three things. Uh, I, I was writing my own list down, and one of them was, was linking that I think has been referred to quite a few uh, times. I think if you look at the uh, INDCs that have come out so far, you look at the large countries, and the large countries have not expressed this great interest in, in, in international credits or international activity right now. They all seem to be very preoccupied with, with uh, putting their house in order. I think the interest for linking or the interest for international markets coming from the smaller countries. And that is normal to some degree. The EU market is liquid. The Chinese market will be liquid. The US market will be liquid. But the Canadian market won't be liquid or the Colombian market will not be liquid. So I think there is going to be a push from the smaller to medium countries that will need the liquidity, not as a, a, as a luxury, but as a necessity in order to be able to function in the carbon market. How that is going to be done, I think it's going to be very interesting. But I think the illusion that linking is an easy proposition and it's easy to do, I don't, I don't think it holds true. I think holding two different emission trading systems from two different countries with different economies is a much more complex thing than people give it credit for. And as such, I still believe that some international framework is necessary for that. The second thing that I would see on is the issue of competitive pressures. 
the, the, we are all addressing right now, and every system that I know of has a, some kind of a, a exemption or a way of addressing competitive pressures, and we're doing this through free allocation. I think that's, that's what everybody likes and what everybody understands. But mathematically, within the next 10, 15 years, that is not possible. If you want to do 85% to 90% decarbonization, it's very difficult to exempt 40% of your emissions from, from, by giving free allocation. Right now, this is a problem from the EU, and it's going to be a problem for the US maybe, but when it's going to be a problem for China, it's going to be a problem for the other ones, I think some kind of international cooperative agreement is going to be necessary. I'm not suggesting that this is something for tomorrow, because it is not something for tomorrow, but I think the seeds and the information for how this should be done is going to take a long time because it is about competition, about real money. And I think we should think about that right after we finish with the, uh, with the Paris Agreement and the uh, international uh, and the uh, uh, EU ETS restructuring. The final one, which I think is very dear to me, I was very, very intrigued to hear Carlo talk about governance. Uh, the governance issue, I think, as I said to you, it, it's, it's, it's different in Europe than we be in Canada because of the different governance in, in general. But I think that thinking that we're getting this thing well uh, on a uh, on putting something in place that will function five years from now and do a review another three years from now is a very, very different proposition. I think there are extremes. There's an extreme where everything is run by a set of laws and rules and, and, and it's set in stone. And there's a second extreme, if you want, where you, you talk about a carbon bank, which with a little I understand about European policies, I think is not an easy thing to do. Politically, it's not. Whether it's desirable or not is another discussion. But some kind of a flexibility in the governance, I think, is necessary. Whether that flexibility is built in the review and how the review is done and, and who is involved in the review, but I also urge that the flexibility to ensure that we can react without having to go through this co-decision thing all the time, which becomes impossible and, and the, you, know, you cannot react to market changes to that speed, I think is necessary. I will leave that to people who know better about the EU system that, uh, than me, but I think it's something we should consider, especially as we launch ourselves in the, in, the, in the structural discussion. Thank you. Thanks, Andre. Next on my list is Frank. Thanks, uh, Peter. I'd just like to, to pick up Jean-Yves point about the uh, time horizon. And it's kind of a puzzle to me why we lock into 2030. Is that because it's a round number or because it's what the political system can deal with or what? You know, I mean, if the American failed attempt, and there may be a relationship here, was 2050. So they went out to 2050, and also uh, they had tremendous coverage. So they had a, a shrinking cap that had a much, much longer time horizon. Now, our time horizons have, have grown in each step. It gets a little bit longer. Um, but our roadmaps are all 2050, but the policy framing is 2030. And it does seem to me that short-term vision comes at a big cost, I think, in terms of, of decision-making. Um, and I, I do wonder why. You know, there's obviously a good reason for it, or we, we presumably we would take a longer horizon. Um, the other thing is the scope issue. I mean, if, if we had complete-ish coverage, 
and if we had a long horizon, then I think it would make sense to invest in uh, renewables or to provide special provisions to get some <clears throat> scale and innovation there and so on. But you could specify that the reasons were other than achieving reduction. It might be to reduce the cost of them in the long term and so on. Um, so I've just, the, 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 the coverage and the horizon are both issues that seem to me to be unaddressed really in the discussion and they have big implications for efficiency I would have thought. Um, so I'd just be interested in, in a reaction to that and perhaps an American one too, whether the huge ambition in the Waxman-Markey legislation mm. in terms of scope and the horizon was part of the reason it failed or not. Because it, the second best that works is always better than the ideal that fails. So I can see that, that logic. Thank you. Thanks very much, Frank. I think, of course, one thing to, to keep in mind with the time horizon is uh, since 2008, when the directive was revised, when the linear reduction factor was introduced, which is creating a, a very long time horizon on one of the major pillars, so to say, which is underlying the architecture of the ETS. Danny, say, say on that, Peter, nobody seems to believe that. This is the problem. <laughs> in, uh, that um, um, somebody made, made the point, I think it was Dan, that the, the actors don't haven't internalized that as 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 a reality and how how they make decisions. It seems so. There's something going on there that I don't quite yeah. get. Okay, next on my list is Danny. Okay, let me just intervene on that point. It's not the point I wanted to make, but it seems to me if I, I mean I agree, and I think it's more outside the system in some ways that people see nothing beyond 2020 or they don't give credence to the linear reduction factor. But I find it hard to think that it's not recognized that it's going on and marching on regardless, even if there's no agreement, simply by the fact of the 1.5 billion plus bank that people are holding and the price did not go to zero. I mean, somebody's holding those and they did not sell you know, 350 or I can't remember exactly, they didn't. And we've demonstrated in this, in the EU ETS has demonstrated the price can go to zero. I mean, that, it's not like there's some natural bound that it won't go under. We know in 2007 it went there. So with the amount that we have, whether you could, you know, I mean, could you use all that up before 2020? I, you know, these sort of discount rates and everything, I'm, I wonder, but I think there is a question, do people, are, are people going to suddenly realize there's this linear reduction factor? And even if two point whatever now, 3%, you know, the tightening fails to gain a consensus that, well, it's still marching on and it's still ratcheting down. But, so let me just say the comment that I wanted to make on that, on uh, another issue is on uh, overlapping policies. And I guess I, it's sort of a personal journey in a way I would say in this. But I like the clarity of the you know, one policy, one instrument uh, that'd be modeled. In theory, it's clear. But the more, the question I raise is whether it is meaningful in practice. And that uh, can we identify strictly overlapping policies? And I guess I come out of this with, I can't. And if you think in the EU ETS, I mean, there, you know, it, it's hard to, what is, there are other objectives, policies often have multiple objectives and everything interacts to greater or less degree. 
Uh, and there are things that are non-policy that relate, that interact with it, such as lower oil prices, although one could ask whether that too is sort of a policy and, you know, that we can say what we have now, is, is that just natural forces? Not entirely, it's, you know, Saudi Arabia has a big role to play in that, and that was a decision made, a political decision that is having. So I think these interactions are there, and if we have a market, it interacts with everything, uh, public as well as non-public actions that are taken. Uh, and I guess I've come out of this with the sort of, you think how much of a problem this is, that the it sort of get over it, relax. Uh, you know, these interactions are there. You have to evaluate their effect. Maybe it means you need a stronger cap. Uh, you don't want to, you know, given the nature of the overall game here, in a way, or let's say the overall objectives, it's you want to sustain a price at some level, and you need to broaden the system. So if you had some. You know, I suppose the only thing you'd say where a zero price would be acceptable is if there were suddenly some major innovation that, that freed us from any dependence on greenhouse gas emitting energy sources and therefore, you know, problem solved. And everybody would adopt it. It's just a question, how quickly will it be adopted? Okay, fine, that's, that's good. But in the meantime, I think we're going to have these interactions and uh, it, it's not the big problem that people are making it out to be that, uh, and we need to relax. <laughs> Thank you, Danny. Before I hand over to Bryony, I say I can't help commenting myself for a, a minute about this issue that Danny also commented on the spot on what I would call the perception by market participants, what the fact is in the letter of the law. So, so this, this, you know, I've, I've seen and experienced this quite a bit of time that, you know, the letter of the law is something that is basically underpinning the market, but it's not, not the thing that the market participants actually take time reading. Uh, it's going to be a continued surprise from time to time, but please, Priyani, the floor is yours. Thank you. Just, just a few comments on, on the future challenges and um, picking up on a few things people have already said. I think one thing we can learn from the last, or the phase we're currently in, is that uh, eight years perhaps wasn't the best of ideas, and maybe we should have stuck to the five year. And if we think about how we give this... The, the, the question that Jean-Yves has, has posed and others have, have talked about, and how do you give both a long-term certainty and some flexibility? We grappled with this in the UK when we were working out how to, to work out our Climate Change Act. And we, we took a process of working this through and we came up with carbon budgets, which we set three consecutive carbon budgets covering 15 years and set a long-term target in law. And I think there's something to be, there's, there's a reason why we did that, because it gave that combination of long-term certainty, blood flexibility. And I think if we slip from a five-year to an eight-year phase and then accidentally move into a 10-year phase, we won't, we won't be learning the lessons, which is that we absolutely need to have regular and planned reviews so that we can recalibrate if we need to. So that's one thing I hope I'll, we'll see now in this next phase as we design the, design the future of the ETS. I think I, I would completely agree with Lewis that we should be expanding this to the, as much of the economy as possible. I don't know why we'd be talking about linking with China if we haven't linked with our own transport sector. That seems a bit, you know, a non-brainer. Um, there'll, be, there'll be opposition to that. People will say, oh, but, you know, you, you can't price uh, emissions out of transport. Of course you can. And it wouldn't be the only policy you would use either. You'd, you'd do as you've done in power. You'd layer up our various um, policies and make sure that you get the price barriers and the non-price barriers all pointing in the right direction. Uh, on the um, interlocking policies, 
I, I don't disagree that it's maybe not the major issue, but I wouldn't say relax, Commission. I would say please go back to your models and work through them properly to look at exactly what the future holds, in, in assuming that those other policy mechanisms plus uh, things outside of, of our control what does the future really look like? Because your current modelling tells you that it's all very difficult, emissions are staying stubbornly high, everything we've seen so far is the opposite. So you, know, you can relax in terms of it not being the major issue, but you cannot relax in terms of how you manage it. You must manage it and you've got to get the modelling right, otherwise you will continue to set totally unrealistic caps and we will be forever faced with an eternal surplus. And I, and I, I do think that's the, you know, the fundamental challenge at the moment is how can we get politicians to understand that going further need not be painful nor expensive because trading will give you the most efficient answer that you could possibly want. They need to, to understand that and then show some ambition. But um, that's, uh, hopefully we can achieve some of that now as we go forward on, on, on firmer foundations. Thank you. Thanks for sharing those thoughts. The next one on my list is Daniela. Yes, thank you, Peter. Um, yes, I'd like to build up on, on three comments. The first one, again, is policy overlap, and um, I, I see what you're saying, Danny, and I agree with you partially. I think we need to make a distinction between uh, uh, what is redundant slash duplication and what is overlap. And again, in ENER, we've been looking at this for a couple of years. I'm the head of low carbon policies who actually look at these interactions. You know, and when I hear, you know, arguments like, Louis, you are making on renewables, I cringe because, again, renewables is not about CO2. If you talk to renewables people, CO2 is there, but for them, renewables is about security supply, which a CO2 target doesn't deliver necessarily. So I think you need to, there's qualifications, but again, the distinction is what is redundant and what is overlapping. An EPS could be redundant because you're trying to regulate the same exact type of uh, issue by putting a standard, a command and control standard on power plants. So I think that's a distinction that needs to be made. And I agree with what you were saying earlier, Bernie. Uh, you need, we need better modeling. Uh, we need to be able to better uh, forecast the delivery of overlapping policies and better forecast also the reporting of what they're actually reporting and incorporate that into the reporting that the market gets so that the actual people who trade are able to forecast what these impacts are going to be. Today we've been trying to track down as NL the delivery of the energy labeling directive. It's very difficult. Uh, the building performance, uh, um, energy performance directive, very difficult. So we need better reporting on these, in this legislation. Uh, the second issue I wanted to comment on is on the linking. I think uh, it is quite important, and I agree with what you were saying. You know, it does introduce some uncertainty. On the other hand, my reading is that by increasing liquidity, it will create greater stability. So if you have exogenous shocks at the regional level in Europe, we've had this uncertainty driven by exogenous shocks. If it was a more global market, maybe it would have been less disruptive. So I think globalization does increase uncertainty on the short term, but on the longer term, uh, it can help a lot. And again, let's learn from what we've done. You know, we've done the CDM, going back to what Peter was saying, we worked on uh, supplementarity. Uh, it was too high of a cap for that linking. If I recall, it was 50% of the effort was the cap for the credits inflow into the market. 
That obviously was too much. We were overrun by credits. So now if we link, let's put a, a smaller cap on linking, 5%, 10% in order to be bold, but at the same time have the ability to review what's going on and maybe to correct it. So again, linking has its uncertainties, but I think it is important in order to give greater stability because again, let's remember uh, the European ETS is after all very stable. I mean, to change it, it's taking us a long time. If we look at the changes into national schemes that we had before the UTS, the English one first, the Danish one, those were a lot more unstable. So I think the more global the trading system is, the more stability we have, greater certainty for investors. Uh, the third and last uh, area I wanted to comment on is on the earmarking. And I think, Bill, you brought it up, other people brought it up. Uh, I recall going through the Wax and Markey bill back then and seeing those beautiful graphs of how all this money was going to go and compensate lots of people. And they were very inspiring. Now, I understand the theory. I've learned it in London quite well. Your marking is bad, you know? You, you do want to earmark revenues, right, Stephen? If I listened to your lectures back then correctly. On the other hand, I was sitting in New York last fall uh, at the summit and I was hearing these people from Reggie going on and on on how Reggie was a wonderful scheme because it actually managed to generate all these revenues that were going into green projects. And I was thinking, hang on a second. I mean, they have an insignificant price. They have very little abatement, but they're blowing the trumpets on how successful this thing is. So again, I think we need to learn from that and maybe in Europe, you know, concentrate also more on how we can make sure that these revenues can go back into this ETS sectors to decarbonize. And I do realize the political difficulties of this, but maybe they're worthwhile overcoming. And I'll just leave it to that. Thank you. Thanks, Daniele. Next one is Matthias. Thank you very much. Uh, I think I'll also be speaking to that uh, general theme of, of multiple policies and uh, interactions. And these are some reflections influenced by work done under a research project that uh, we've been able to be part of called, uh, funded by the European Commission called Cecilia 2050. That's been trying to deal with, uh, you know, coming to conclusions on what actually sound policy mixes can be for the long-term decarbonization uh, in Europe. And so that has very much focused on the question, what's, what role is there for carbon pricing and for the emissions trading system? And let me say up front, you know, con general conclusions, at least from the research involved, as researchers involved has definitely been carbon pricing as a tool in Europe is still very much underutilized uh, and has a lot more potential and needs strengthening. But um, at the same time, I think, uh, especially when we are looking at the long-term perspective, we have to look at what the specific challenges are that we need to overcome to get to the 80 to 95 percent. And we therefore need to move away from a little bit the perspective of short-term uh, static cost effectiveness and need to um, have a broader perspective that is more long-term and more dynamic perspective on what is cost-effective policy. And so, I think it was in a previous session, it was sort of Felix largely going through the exercise of what the EU ETS has been good at. You know, what is it good at as a tool? It's good at optimizing processes. It's been uh, doing an okay job in preventing certain higher carbon investments. It's not done good enough maybe, but could do better with potential on uh, supporting clean, uh, and clean investments. And I think the big gap that has been pointed out by a number of you around the table also is uh, what can it do though for uh, innovation in clean technology? 
And, and what can it do is the additional question that I would add to that in, and what's the role of these in bringing the necessary infrastructure to bear as well. And so for the, the 2050 targets, the challenges that we face, I think, require very obviously additional policies to overcome some of the obvious challenges. The innovation to get us to low carbon industry in Europe is an obvious one. There are also the examples of electrifying uh, our transport systems. And so, you know, getting the, the grids uh, in place for, for either of these. So from my perspective, in, in summary, I think there's a, there are very good arguments to show that we need a variety of very targeted policies that can, can work together. And so what we need to do is manage the interactions, relax about them potentially, and not pretend that we just make them go away by you know, covering it all with just one single instrument. Thank you. Thanks, Matthias. Now I go back to one of our panelists from this morning. Rob is next to my list. Um, thank you very much, uh, Peter, and, and thanks everybody for the discussion this afternoon. I mean, I find myself wrestling with these issues quite a bit, but um, I'm certainly finding myself more persuaded by um, the relaxation agenda that, uh, that Danny advocated. And I guess I would push back a little bit on, on the line of thinking that, uh, that Lewis very uh, very clearly articulated. I think it's emphatically not irrelevant how targets are met. Um, we have, I think, a little bit of a, a dialogue de sur here in that we're comparing a sort of warts and all track record of, of feed-in tariffs and other types of policy mixes with a very idealized version of an emissions trading system that I'm not sure applies. Um, I think one of the things we've learned is that you can actually meet a target over a fairly long time period, let's say a decade, through a combination of economic contraction, generous upfront allowances, and, um, and access to um, international mechanisms. Um, and that if what we had done uh, there is simply say, well, that's going to work for us, as long as we meet that target, it doesn't really matter. We won't go with the renewable stuff. We won't go with the efficiency stuff. We won't try and put CCS forward. We would simply have thrown away a decade. Um, now, if, if we want to counter that with the idea that, okay, but if we didn't have those other policies, um, the price of carbon would have been high enough to actually drive those other technologies. Well, let's start to think explicitly about whether we're confident that the system will actually hold that. Um, I'm not hearing anybody say that you know, CCS is suddenly going to be widely deployed because we hit 20 euros, 30 euros, something like that. Do we, do we really think that prices are going to go over 100 euros and that's what's going to drive this? You know, Guy was pointing out um, this morning, I think absolutely rightly, that we have, we have yet to test this system for um, you know, its, its sort of political longevity with 30, 40 euros in the price over, over a sustained period. Um, you know, we the, um, to pick up on the question that, um, uh, that our loyal viewer, um, one of no doubt millions and millions that are hanging on our every word, <laughs> I assume we're getting Super Bowl level ratings, um, but uh, the question that was raised about transport, well, um, can transport respond to prices? Yeah, sure. Right now, we tax fuel at about $500 per tonne. Right? So if we say, okay, but a new price coming in from an emissions trading system is going to change that, what are we saying? Are we saying that an extra $5 a ton is going to make the difference? Or are we, going to, or are we saying, no, we're going to set targets at a level that means we're going to be trading for another $500 a ton in the emissions trading system, and we think the ETS will survive that? Um, 
you know, we, I think we can't, we can't have it both ways. We can't imagine that um, all we need to do is set a target, the price signal will be out there, and then things will happen by magic. Still, the, the fundamental things need to change. Our climate change policy is worth nothing if it's not um, deploying zero carbon sources, driving CCS, getting efficiency down to, um, to, uh, to serious levels and so forth. Now, there might be lots of ways of doing that and I wouldn't argue for a second that the, the mix we happen to have designed of feed-in tariffs and directives on buildings and Lord knows what else is the optimal mix. But um, if we're imagining that um, there are solutions out there that we're so not spotting that all we have to do is put sort of a 20, 30 euro um, price in the tank and the market's going to drive all of these other changes that we've seen, the mass deployment of wind, the, um, you know, the, all of the kinds of things that are going to need to be done with um, you know, storage on the grid, all of these kinds of things, um, then, then we're kidding ourselves. So I think we need to think for, forever in terms of emissions trading not being a, sing a single system that takes over from other things. It will coexist for its entire life with many other policies aiming at many other um, uh, policy goals. And it will do important things. Um, you know, it's clearly already sent a powerful political signal for domestic actors right across the economy and for our international partners. It's put carbon management into thinking uh, across a wide array of companies. It acts as an insurance policy so that if, um, if we do find um, emissions surging beyond what we thought, um, the price will, will kick in much more, uh, much more actively. Um, it does all of those things, but what it hasn't done so far is be the primary driver for the core mitigation actions that we actually need to see. I don't think that is any, in any way damning of the ETS, but I think it, what it means is that for any future that I can foresee, the ETS is something that coexists with a raft of policies and measures, as I think was rightly done from the start in the, in the European Climate Change Program, and that um, we're not going to see, and that we should not see, a single price of carbon as being the thing that drives multifarious different um, activities with multiple policy outcomes. Um, we live in a, a political landscape in which we're trying to achieve many things, whether it's industrial development, security of supply, poverty, you know, fuel poverty alleviation, and carbon reductions, and the result will be messy, and we just have to live with that. Thanks. Next on my list is Dan, one of our panelists. Thank you, Peter. I just wanted to offer a few observations from uh, my work in China um, to participants here. Uh, because I think that um, uh, the discussion about linking is both, uh, um, I think, premature, for sure, and one in which I would uh, advocate a lot of patience and managing expectations. I I've seen uh, linking discussions change political dynamics in countries radically. Russia is a wonderful example of that experience over time. And I also want to urge you to really think carefully about um, the context. And by context, I mean the particular governance system that we're dealing with. Uh, China's extremely complex in terms of its governance, as is the EU. And often when we engage with delegations, we don't have that context and we don't have that background and therefore the communication is often really difficult if not misunderstood. I think what the, you know, many times what 
um, Chinese colleagues really want to understand is they want to understand what are the problems that you faced? What are the issues? What were the concerns from uh, participants? How are they materializing now? And what were the solutions that you developed? Very often instead what they see is the outcome. They see the result of the various political compromises that have been made and somehow the uh, assessment comes through that, well, this is the, this is the optimal result. This is, you know, this is the received wisdom. This is natural order of things. You know, it's how it should be. And of course, that's not exactly the, the story. And, and so I think this whole discussion, for example, on overlapping policies is extremely important um, to China. It's, it has uh, a set of overlapping policies that are extraordinary in terms of their range. You've got the emissions trading system, you have carbon intensity targets, you have energy intensity targets, you've got um, renewable energy targets, you have uh, controls on the um, total amount of primary energy that well, has to come from non-fossil sources, you have coal caps, um, they've got caps on conventional pollutants, um, subsidies in terms of the power sector, etc. All of these are overlapping and interacting at the, at, at the same time. So there's a huge amount of testing and learning that's going on at the same time that the governance system itself, in terms of China, the government's in the process of reforming, um, you know, in a, in a major way with respect to um, unleashing market forces, focusing on the importance of uh, resource efficiency. So the, both the combination of both scope and path for China are very uncertain. I think we'll see some tests coming up in this next year with the introduction of the 13th five-year plan if we see uh, markers in the plan with respect to um, milestones for development of a national, national ETS, then I think we can um, have, um, you know, be encouraged about the outcome. But I, I, again, I think that engagement is important, very important, but I think it's important to tell the more detailed story, take, take the time to really build the kind of understanding about what the nature of the challenges were and why the system exists the way it, the way it does now. So um, I, th I think that would stand us in good stead a long way and be probably the most important thing we could do toward linking. Thanks, Dan. Next on my list is Julia Michalek from Demos Europe in Warsaw. Thank you, Peter. Um, I just wanted first to make a small remark about what has been said about the linear reduction factor. I found it really interesting that one of these features that are really stable and predictable in the ETS, so the decreasing cup and, uh, and the linear reduction factor governing the cup is being seen as something uncertain and questioned and still not really trusted. So, so it's just an observation that the discussion is uh, happening already for a long time that one of these very stable things, it doesn't matter which is 1.74 or 2.2, is still not being seen as, as, as stable and uh, predictable. Uh, but I wanted to comment on another issue that uh, has been uh, partly raised in a question that came online because that's, uh, that's something that uh, has been uh, raised also in the debate earlier. Uh, while it has been said by uh, Felix about the ETS discouraging high carbon investments, and there is a one um, exemption and there is a one example that I wanted to raise to where the ETS did not really fully manage 
to achieve this objective, which is exactly a derogation that, uh, that Peter mentioned has been uh, raised in a question from someone who's watching our debate. Uh, where uh, member states uh, that were allowed to make use of this uh, derogation were in return requested and obliged to prepare uh, uh, investment plans. And uh, after um, seeing these investment plans and, and analyzing them and, uh, and looking at them, it has been uh, very clear that uh, these investments, contrary to what they have been used for, are going massively into fossil fuels and largely biomass. For instance, in Poland, it's 90% of investment plan, which is worth more or less 5.5 billion euro going into uh, modernizing uh, uh, fossil fuel uh, generation and, and uh, largely turning, turning many coal-fired power stations into uh, uh, stations that can also use co-firing. So that's definitely one of uh, the failures. There was, uh, mm, as we all aware, uh, a political unwillingness uh, to um, uh, make this uh, derogation to fit its purpose. Uh, and uh, that's, that's something that I believe uh, when we are talking about how the ETS should work after 2020 should be uh, tackled and um, whether derogations should be maintained that has been, that's been somehow uh, replied by uh, October Council conclusions when the EU leaders agreed that it will stay in place which means that the Eastern, uh, uh, Central Eastern European member states will have a 20 years uh, exemption, a derogation from the general rule of auctioning in the power sector so it's two decades of a delay because uh, it will continue until 2030 and perhaps even longer because we also thought it will stop 2019. However, last uh, autumn uh, it's been clear that, uh, that uh, it's not the end, so we may see it even instead of 20 years, 30 years in the future. But if, if it's there and it's going to be there and if it's going to be at, uh, for, the, for the next uh, 15 years at least uh, and a part of the EU ETS, the question is not whether it's there or not there, it's there, but under which conditions? And what kind of investments will these member states that will make use of this provision be obliged to realize? Whether, whether there will be robust MRV to check whether these investments are additional, are not business as usual, are really delivering on its purpose, uh, and whether they are in line with some long-term mitigation plans that uh, uh, under the current debates about the energy union would probably have to be drawn by, by member states. Um, and uh, uh, my second comment, uh, also related to this region, which I, I'm focusing on, is about auctioning revenues. That's also uh, an issue that has been raised during this discussion. And I also wanted to point out that uh, while there is a non-binding um, obligation for member states to use at least 50% of auctioning revenues for climate purpose, there is an exemption in the directive which says that all money raised by member states uh, through selling of additional auctioning revenues given to member states through solidarity and Kyoto mechanisms. So these poorer member states, mainly because there are a few exemptions like Sweden, Belgium, but mainly poorer member states from Central Eastern Europe, that revenues uh, raised by selling of this uh, EUS should be spent 100% on climate purpose. It's about 9 billion euro. And uh, from, uh, from what we see, there is uh, no separate reporting on this, there is no uh, uh, any uh, evidence that is happening, at least in case of Poland, which is the largest beneficiary of this money. So while uh, the very existence of this mechanism is justified, it has been also politically agreed and they will continue and they will be aiming to help these member states in low carbon transition, um, I believe it must be, uh, uh, should be, make very clear 
under the new uh, ETS opening, after, uh, under the new uh, phase, uh, that, uh, that it should serve its purpose and should really go for low-carbon investments to uh, facilitate, to mitigate this low-carbon transition, which is especially difficult in these member states, but they also have a massive potential. Thank you. Thanks, Julia. And next on my list is Jill. Thank you. I think over the last um, 10 years, as we've all been discussing today, the EU ETS has proved very adept at um, being prag you know, making pragmatic political compromises, dealing with unintended consequences, and what Daniele would call exogenous shocks, and I might call unexpected events. Um, and I think that's been its strength. Rather than planning for the long term, when we have made decisions a long time in advance, we've often found that the ground has shifted beneath our feet by the time we get there, and perhaps they're not the right decisions. So I think flexibility and the ability to respond to events and to changing circumstances and to new technologies is absolutely paramount. And it does also mean that we need to be able to use different mechanisms and different policies to achieve that. I think back in 2006, and somebody here will be able to tell me that I'm wrong, I think the UK was generating about 2% of electricity from renewable sources. And today it's generating about 11 or 12% from renewable sources, maybe a little bit more. I'm quite clear that two things were necessary for that. One was the renewables targets, and the other one was to move the people who were working on renewables um, up until that time who perhaps weren't fully enthusiastic about the ability to go further than, than happened. And I think there, you know, there are lessons to be learned from that, is that the EU ETS, good though it is, and constant support for good behaviour, does not necessarily push the things in the timetable that we need to have the results that we need. And I think looking forward, we need to make sure that we can respond to the challenges that we recognize as they come up. And the challenge that I see at the moment is how to help industrial sectors decarbonize and to do so in a way where it's not each member state looking for a solution, but we try and see if we can get European-wide solutions to fund or encourage that decarbonization, which is not just about innovation, but it's also about new business models and actually encouraging clusters of businesses to work together to see what they can do in that way. And I, I put this out as a challenge to some of those great brains in the room. Um, to start thinking about how do we do this pretty quickly and start thinking about how we can encourage some of our industrial sectors and clusters to decarbonize and how we can incentivize them to do that. Thank you. Next on my list is Marco. Make it more complicated. I won't make it more complicated. Yes. <laughs> my neighbor is making comments on me. <laughs> um, no, I, I agreed with, with Julia, which is sort of scary, but on the, um, on the derogation, I'm not sure I get any derogation which doesn't apply with the no free allocation to any electricity. Um, and I would hope the funding is indeed used. And that's the point where I'd like to start. Shell should, may, can. Member states shall use. I think we need to get over the, the may, the could, the would, and the should. Um, the revenues coming from ETS need to come back into the system. And that's, sorry. That's the revenues coming back from ETS should be put in the system. Reason as well, if you look at the council conclusions in October and the MSR debate, and maybe I'm slightly cynical, it seemed the member states were mostly focused on getting enough funding from ETS um, and getting their share of the funding from ETS, and they were not really focused on innovating that money back into the system. So. I think that's where the directive can be of help and 
I'm pretty sure the council debate will be happy, but we, we should at least aim for, for shall put it back on derogations, but in the general context as well. And then I will call, and you've heard me call, for strong earmarking for Annex 1 sectors uh, in the NER 400 or anyone else, that you actually put the carrots to the sectors where the stick is and the roadmaps are, and you drive sector by sector to solutions that they could, uh, could find. I'd like to hit as well on the point of relax, um, because I think it's relaxing, prioritize, and be a bit modest, because this group in itself is ready to destroy the next ETS by another 3,000 amendments in the European Parliament. Um, if we get all what we want, we might never get something, and you'll see, at least on our side, that we'd rather have a moderate change of ETS with small changes and big impacts than a huge change of ETS with all the words changed and the chaos never getting back into Pandora's box again. Um, last time we had 1,489 or 92. I've got the exact number of amendments. This parliament's going to be over 3,000. I'll gamble a bottle of Italian wine on that one. Um, but getting it done timing-wise, we're getting to 2020. It's, it's around the corner. It's tomorrow. Even when we have a summer package, make the countdown, um, I'm going to have companies in 2018 saying, can you please explain me what happens in 2020 and beyond. Um, so relax, moderate, prioritize. Um, that is why I won't say what industry wants, but I'd like to call your attention to the 11 sectors joint reply to Commissioner Kanyete on energy intensives idea on changes to the EUETS, because thanks to the Commissioner, we were forced to one single opinion um, which has not happened in history, and it's out there if you want to copy, then all the major energy intensives have now one joint opinion on the, um, the changes to ETS. Last but not least, and I come back to the funding, and I'd like to connect that to the, to the linear factor. If the linear factor goes to 2.2%, that's more than double the normal efficiency improvement in industry, which is about 0.8% per year historically. So if you efficiency-wise do 0.8 per year, linear does 2.2, you're already hitting the point where ETS is a cost and doesn't match up with efficiency. But if there's no answer at the end of the road where you break your 0.8 line and start making massive changes, um, I think we're definitely doing the wrong way. And that is, at least for us, if you want to go those directions, the money has to come back and the changes have to be made and the technology has to come which starts with the shell for member states and not the shoot. So if I can wish one thing, it's a one-word change. It's member states shall spend um, and then industry shall do as well. Thanks. Thank you, Mark. We are now at the end of our time budget, but we'll run a bit longer. I will have a last call now for interventions. I close my list after I've given the floor to the next speaker, which is one of our guests from across the Atlantic, Bill Irving. Uh, thank you, Peter, and thank you to, to all of you. It's been a real privilege to sit through the last uh, three panels and, 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 and learn about um, you know, the past and of the UETS, which was, I knew pretty well, but also some of the issues you're, you're tackling. Um, suffice it to say, there are, there are those uh, from outside the European Union who might wish to have some of your problems. So I, I guess when you, get, uh, when you get really frustrated, you can, you can consider that. That's not, of course, you know, a recommendation that you, you take it so easily you don't address your challenges, but, um, but it, it could be worse, I guess. Um, 
I'd like to maybe point out a couple of things. I, I, you know, there was a time when someone from the US EPA could come to Europe and tell you something about emissions trading that you didn't know, but I think that time is, has long passed. Um, there are aspects, speaking of the international linkages, aspects of what you're dealing with uh, which have implications even for governments that are considering other types of instruments and policies, and I just want to point these out because I think they do intersect, Peter, with some of the, the, the topics you raised. Um, you know, I think where, where the debates are very active and, and progress on, on, on climate policy is very fragile, uh, there are those who are looking for examples of, of failed climate policies, even if it's not the same one. Um, and you know, I, I think it's fair to say that the EUETS being one of the biggest, uh, and certainly the biggest multilateral climate policy out there, um, that there, there are those who are going to look for it uh, for, for examples of either it's too costly or it's not effective. Uh, or there's fraud, or uh, it's, there's leakage. Um, and I think the, the more that you can do as you go through and, and resolve some of these issues to uh, communicate some of the fundamentals um, that you know that aren't necessarily getting communicated as, as, as well as they could. Um, analysis of the costs and benefits. Um, continue to support work by researchers to do that. Impacts on competitiveness is important for other types of policies. In, uh, impacts on electric electricity system reliability uh, with a shift towards uh, renewables and away from coal is actually still a very live issue in, in a number of countries. Uh, interaction with other policies such as energy efficiency and renewable energy. Uh, a very specific one which I won't bore you with but I could talk for hours is the treatment of biomass. Um, and uh, so to the extent that you, you're, you're sort of looking internationally, it's not just the, the countries and governments who you think that you may want to link with uh, because they have a, you know, a similar type of system. I think it's, it's, actually, uh, it's actually much broader than that. So I'll, I'll stop there, but thanks again for the, for the great discussion. Thanks very much, Bill, and it's indeed a very, very long time since we started learning from you when we started to do our work on this continent. Next one on my list is Felix. I would like to make two comments um, which might be a bit of provocation. The first is on being relaxed in Europe. The German part, the German part of my brain is extremely relaxed on all the policy overlaps, etc., etc. After we have the hybrid and the market stability reserve, I'm extremely relaxed. The problem is that the European part of my brain is extremely worried. Because, and that is in, that is in provocation, uh, uh, the advocates of the ETS only are those who drive the renationalization of energy and climate policy. Because there's an interest in these policies, there are good reasons, not all except all of the reasons, but there are good reasons for, to have these complementary uh, policies. And the worst thing which could happen from the European perspective that, uh, that the notion that the ETS is the one and only instrument for driving decarbonization drives the complementary policies to the member states. And that is not only a theory. I think what the package we have at the moment is we have this binding greenhouse gas emission reduction target, then we have this binding and non-binding energy efficiency and renewables targets, and then we have the famous new governance structure, which is nothing else than another word for the pledge and review world. 
And the only instrument for convergence is the state aid control. And that will go wrong. Because if one really is interested in European policy and also in the internal market, we need probably no harmonization. There is the legal basis too complicated. But we need convergence for the different mechanisms. I say, and I say mechanisms and not instruments. Because uh, to give an example, and this is also about this, this free allocation for the East European power generators. The commission has set up a sector inquiry on, in brackets, the misuse of capacity mechanisms. Will the free allocation for the East European power generators subject to this sector inquiry? Clear answer, probably not. So, and that, we, that means we, 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 lose, we lose the opportunity to streamline certain mechanisms or revenue streams or whatever else uh, if, we, if, we, if, if this goes more or less into a pledge and review and renationalized policy world. And that worries me really. And I think these new governance structures uh, makes me nervous on this. Because in the end of the day, it will lead to it will it will lead to renationalization, and we can't we can't afford this. And therefore, I think it's it's it's, it's much more important to to say, okay, there is an interest, there will be these mechanisms. Let's to let's try to structure these revenue streams and mechanisms, and let let's try to bring these on an on a on a course of to convergence to maintain the European part of the game, because that is getting lost. And the second is on the transportation, which was the, which was the question. And I think we should be very, very frank on this. The key issue on, on the long term, I think we, there will, there's no way to leave the transport sector out of the ETS, because if you get electric mobility, sector integration, etc., there's no way to do this. The problem is, is this the next step? And there's an academic answer. I would say, doesn't help much. No many problems with this because the five, the five euros per ton additional doesn't make any, a difference. But the hidden agenda, and that is the key issue, is not to integrate the transport into the ETS. The real question is what to do with the, with the then complementary instruments for the transport sector. And one of the major drivers of this debate is, and if you look to the players who drive this forward, is to get rid of this efficiency standards for the transport sector. And you can, you, you, you can have a debate on this, but I think as long as these hidden motivations drive this type of expansion of the ETS, we are, we, are, we, are, we, are, we are running into problems because all those who by good or bad reasons uh, f f uh, find that efficiency standards for cars is a good idea have observed the debate we have with the renewables and the, and the ETS. Because the debate, it's, it's, it's wasted money, all the money for renewables, it's wasted money because the cap, uh, the cap guarantees the compliance with the climate reduction target. That's the pilot case for the debate on the efficiency standard for transportation. And as long this is not very clear articulated, and if, as, long, as long there is not a clear stand how to deal with this complementarity, uh, this is a poisoned debate. And I think if you look to California, they have successfully integrated the transportation since 2015. But for the transportation in California, if you look to the policy, to the scoping plan, they're, they're not the efficiency standard are complementary. The ETS is the complementary part to a really hardcore ARB style efficiency policy. 
Uh, and uh, and as, a, as long as you uh, accept these or the political motivation behind, it's fine. But as long as you are not clear on the motivations and the stance on the complementarity, it's a poison debate, and, it, and, therefore, and then it's a dangerous debate. And I think that, that, that this is the background for my clear ask to, 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 and being not relaxed on all, all the overlaps, uh, to be very explicit and to be very outspoken on the roles of these different overlapping instruments. In the end of the day, it's policy, there are po and, and politics, not policy, it's, po it's always about politics. But, but we should avoid a situation, and, that, and, and, and I mean this very seriously, where an arbitrary choice of policies is labeled as policy mix. And we need a more systematic issue, a, a, a more systematic approach to, to deal with this if we want to avoid these poisoned hidden debates and if we still, uh, if I would like to maintain the European brain of my, uh, part of my brain. And I think this is an important point and we shouldn't ignore this as some, somehow as a European spe uh, uh, specifics, but if you lo really look to the Chinese debate, they have a debate on all this breaking down the national cap to provinces, et cetera, et cetera. And again, they will copy, uh, they will at least learn from our experience. And again, my most successful uh, presentations in China, if there are any, are those uh, about the European failures, not on the success stories. Uh, but, the, but, the, but, the, but the most effective lessons come from the failures. And therefore, this, is, uh, this debate and this open debate is so important also for the international spillovers. Thanks, Felix, for outlining your dilemma of being German and European at the same time. <laughs> I have four more speakers on my list. Uh, first, Guy. Um, thank you, Felix. I actually thought your comments were extremely relevant. And um, just, uh, I think, um, Danielle, your comment about we need, in terms of the policy overlap um, issue, we need better models. Having been in the forecasting business for over a decade, producing forecasting models, um, I would defend our ability to model the overlaps. It's actually very trivial. It's not that difficult to model the growth of renewables according to the targets, energy efficiency improvements. The problem, no it's not. The problem is not in modeling the overlaps. The problem is modeling the fundamental changes in the European economy. Just let me give you a couple of examples. If you're, uh, for a scheme the size of the UETS, if your annual progression, your annual change in emissions is out by 1% a year, consistently, say too high, over a period of eight years, you're going to be out by about 10%. That's about a, a, a differential of 200 million tons out in your final year. That's equivalent to about 20 or 30 large coal-fired power stations. The stream, your, your assumptions about growth rates in the, in the underlying economy are so important and drive so many of your outcomes. No matter how good your modeling of the interactions of the overlaps is, and it's actually, as I said, not that difficult, there are inherent uncertainties in forecasting over that period of time that make it impossible to be accurate and set targets over that period of time. We could equally have been wrong. We could have got our forecasts wrong to the other side. It so happens that emissions came down faster than we expected. We could be sitting here wondering about price containment mechanisms and political backlash against prices in the 30, 40 euros per ton range. We just don't know. The models themselves are actually quite straightforward to build. So I think, Bryony, your point is the most important one, which is the revision period to simply recalibrate and adjust because of the, un the uncertainty of, um, of, future, of the future. Um, 
And then in terms of the effect, if we actually are capable of isolating these different policies, we have a renewables policy. What do we expect the EU ETS to do as a result under its current scope? Renewables are out. Transport's out. Industry, it can still have some low-hanging fruit. There are some technologies that can still be deployed, 5%, 10% reductions there. Effectively, you're looking at the thermal power generation sector. Um, that effectively leads you in a switch from coal to gas. Does Europe, under the current structure of the, of the, of the, direct, of the scheme, want to shut down the coal generation in Europe and have that thermal generation provided by gas-fired power stations? Because under the current structure, that's what will happen. The, the um, key enabling technology which will allow the emissions trading scheme to incentivize renewables beyond a very moderate level that would be driven by a, a, a politically acceptable carbon price is storage. You have to have storage to enable a carbon price to justify the investment in wind or solar. Without that, the economics just do not work. I can prove it met methodologically. The, every time a coal and um, a wind and solar plant run, they will be in a liberalized market, they will be providing power at, at, at crashed prices. They need to provide power in off-peak price in, um, in when the thermal generators are running. They can't do that because they don't have storage. So a market, a liberalized market mechanism, even with a huge carbon price, will still not incentivize wind and solar onto the system unless they have other forms of support. So you, you inevitably have to have that technology if the market alone is going to drive wind and solar or else go down a CCGT route. And for that, you need targeted support, you need focused development of not just hydro, pumped hydro storage, you need battery storage. I'm just singling, I'm singling down the options that are available to us over the next 10 years. We have to have, for the carbon market mechanism to drive renewables and not just gas, we need the development of a cheap storage technology and currently, other than pumped hydro, the only viable alternative is batteries. So Elon Musk is doing it in the US, we can ride on the back of that, but we need that in Europe if we're going to... Grid integration, grid integration is, is, is the other way of managing supply and demand. But, um, you know, those are, those are what the technologies boil down to. Thanks, Guy. Three more to go. Dirk, first. So I just want to comment on a couple things, um, and maybe picking up where, uh, where Guy left off. Um, one of the things I think that's wonderful about this discussion is that we're thinking ahead to the next decade. So it's really 15 years off and the things that we might need to be doing over the next 15 years. And it's really comforting to know from Denny that we can relax a little bit on the complementary policies. But I think over that time horizon, we're probably going to need to work a little harder on how to get them to converge more. That's one of the things I liked about Ann's uh, model is at least it directly brings two systems together. And maybe that's the challenge to the rest of us. If, if this isn't the, the good idea, maybe there's a better idea about how to do that. But I, I was really struck with that. Um, so I'm, gl I'm glad that's in the, in the public domain to be kicked around and thought about. Um, I also wanted to comment on uh, sort of in the context of that, that timing around um, back to the linkage topic. Um, I didn't mean to suggest that linkage needed to happen right now or that linkage with China needed to happen right now, because I don't think that's, uh, that's really the one that needs to happen soon. But I do think a model of how it works needs to be formulated strategically for that 15-year period. 
um, because we are going to need it longer term. That's going to be an important component. And I disagree with Felix that there's nothing happening out there on linkage because you have two competitors right now that I see. One is California, which has a linkage with Quebec that now it looks like uh, Ontario will join it. There are other states and provinces looking at it. So there's an offer on the table for some jurisdictions. They have MOUs in place with Mexico and some of the Chinese provinces to explore common design features. And the other one is Japan. And Japan's got an operating system right now in place with 12 other jurisdictions for mutual production of offsets. Now they've never produced an offset and they've uh, been working on it for four years. Uh, so it has me a little bit nervous about totally decentralized models. We also have a lot of suspicion about the quality of what's going to come out of it, but since they haven't produced a credit yet, it's hard to say that it's inferior just yet. Um, but I do think that it's important to think about how the market access to the EU over this 15-year period could potentially influence others toward quality because I do think the EU has a quality system, even with the quirks that we've, we've been exploring. There are good things happening out there with capacity building. I know the German government's doing great work with, uh, with a number of jurisdictions, as, as is the UK government, the commission itself, and certainly the Partnership for Market Readiness is a laboratory for a sharing of experiences and hopefully leads to some harmonization of the systems. But I do think it's something that's in Europe's strategic interest to have an agenda on and to be thoughtful about. Um, and the final thing I wanted to do is just uh, take the bait uh, Frank offered about, so what was it about the U.S. legislation that fell apart? And I actually think it goes to the transport problem because maybe they tried to include it too soon. The bill got too big by including that. It had so much money in it that if you can give a Republican senator the uh, ability to walk to the floor of the Senate and say $6 trillion is how much is being spent on this bill over the, the course of time, that's pretty much of the death knell. The other part was there was a lot of overlapping policy in that sucker. I've read all 1,400 pages, although, to be honest, I think I slept through at least 500 of the pages, so maybe I couldn't really tell you what's in them. And maybe the lesson for um, my uh, former Republican colleagues in the room is that that's how Democrats write market-based policy, and maybe what we needed was a, a little bit of Republican uh, participation in the process. But <clears throat> I do think it will come back slowly but surely. Thanks, Dirk. Penultimate speaker is Thomas Wenz. Thank you, Peter. Um, two points, and they all relate back to uh, industrial policy and the relationship with the ETS. Um, if we look back at what's been said this morning about the past uh, of the ETS, the analysis about it, it's operating in the future, you can actually see that the ETS is becoming a bit of a chameleon in a sense that from the start and then the first review we had in 2008 to the Council conclusions of October 2014, we see a rise in dedicated earmarking. The NER 300 was the first time dedicated earmarking at a comprehensive level entered the ETS, thanks to the European Parliament. But that's, that scope has now been broadened in the Council conclusion by repeating NER 300 to 400 modernization and solidarity fund. So that Reggie example that has been mentioned uh, before, I think we're moving definitely in that direction. And the interesting thing or co-benefit of what happened in Reggie by using these uh, revenues for the benefit of people and companies is, is that it is a system that 
in a divided political system of the United States, get some bipartisan support, Republicans and Democrats. And that's something quite uh, remarkable. It helped the paper sector in part of the uh, North New England to uh, become more competitive. It was close to that. It got uh, revenues to modernize. So there is a potential there also for this NER 400 um, to make Europe's industry competitive again. I think this should be this could be the future of the ETS. It is often called the debt to industry. It might become its savior. If I look at promising breakthrough technologies in steel, cement, uh, the chemical sector, and the paper sector, there is huge potential not only for radical greenhouse gas emission reductions, but also for the increase in productivity for huge energy savings in these basic material productions. We can enable this at demonstration scale in Europe, and we can do this thanks to the emissions trading system. It's part of what I call the EU ETS endgame. In 2030, we will be midway until well, the starting point of the ETS, 2005-2012, and basically the end point in 2050, the market will be so small that it, I, we, I don't know how it will operate at that time, but we will be close to decarbonizing Europe. So 2030 will be a turning point. We will need those breakthrough technologies to enable industry cuts uh, deeper after, uh, after 2030. And the second point, of course, next in industrial policies, you can't really pick the winners. You need to create an enabling environment for the winners to emerge, but you can't also keep protecting the losers. And that's one of the failures in the system so far. Why should we keep giving allowances for free at a 100% rate at companies that are not investing in the EU. Why should we keep doing that in a future where the amount of free allowances is always going to be scarcer? There should be room for investments and there should be room for allowances for new investments in the energy intensive sector, but keep protecting the losers is as bad as picking the winners. Thank you. Thanks, Thomas. The last intervention comes from Stephen. Thank you. I'm, as most people will know, one of those who would like to see a strong price signal being one of the predominant um, instruments used to steer us towards a low carbon economy because I think that um, the alternatives typically um, risk um, very high costs um, in, 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 the, in the transition. The point has been made, and I think it's valid, that the um, ETS hasn't been road tested um, with high carbon prices and that's true but I, I wonder whether there are reasons that we can see that, to believe that it would survive um, a sustained high long-term price um, and one of the things that Rob Bradley said um, struck me as being quite important um, indicative or suggestive evidence that in fact we could hope that it would be um, sustainable um, with a long-term price signal. Um, we have had motor fuels um, bearing an implicit carbon tax of um, the order of 500 euros per tonne of carbon equivalent, um, CO2 equivalent, over a very long period of time in most European countries, and they've been the predominant driver towards Europe's um, much lower level of motor fuel consumption um, than, than in the US. 
Um, and they've been very sustainable as a long-term revenue source. Um, and I think that has been the, you know, they've been a long-term source of government revenue, and I think that has been the thing that has um, ensured their, um, their long-term stability. The fact that governments are dependent on these very high tax rates um, for revenues. And that is one of the reasons that makes me moderately anxious about the range of proposals that I hear for earmarking the revenues from um, the ETS um, for this or that or the other purpose. Um, one of the things that I think in the long run will help sustain the ETS is the value of the revenues for purposes um, as a contribution to general revenues and that we risk undermining that value and, and the significance of the protection that that will give us um, if we um, are too happy to um, earmark the revenues for, for other purposes. So I think there's, there's plenty of scope for, or well, there's plenty of reason for optimism that it would um, be possible to run a substantially higher carbon price than we currently have, but I think the um, use of the revenues as a contribution to general revenue um, is going to be quite an important component in making that high carbon price durable in the long term. Thanks, Stephen. Uh, before I will invite Joss to present his takeaway from this session, let me do two things. First, let me thank the panelists and all those people intervening for this session for again having a very rich debate. And secondly, let me make a logistical announcement. The buses to bring us all back to the hotels will depart at 17.30. So that leaves us another 35 minutes. I think we have enough time to wrap up things here and, and chat a bit and then be on the bus at 17.30, bringing us back down to Florence. So with these two announcements, Joss, your takeaways from session three. Well, thank you, uh, Peter, and thank you to all interventions. Um, uh, I think it was a wide-ranging debate that we were having. And I think it's also sure that the ETS is becoming more hybrid than we had it in the past, because the more there is, or every time there is a new policy discussion, that's uh, what the outcome is in reality. I classified what I picked up of the debate in two parts. Uh, what can we do in the next review of the ETS? Uh, that means what can we do in the next couple of years uh, in view of establishing the system up until 2030, and what I consider to be much more long-term and, and needs uh, much further study. For uh, 2030, say for the debate in the coming years, uh, I think the basic point needs repeated, uh, that is that we have to set a cap. And the cap is 43% based on 2005 levels. That means 2.2% every year between 2020 and 2030. Um, we have not regulated beyond 2030 because I think that's very uh, difficult to do in the European context. I would see it politically almost impossible to have the same strictness uh, around such a target if we would go much beyond uh, 2030. And I think our debate proves that because over the last uh, the hour that we have been discussing, it was a lot about what kind of technologies and batteries and storage and, 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 and zero carbon power sector, etc. I mean, these are all things uh, that are very difficult to make any judgment on uh, uh, in, in the perspective of 2050. So every problem would be exacerbated if we would try to regulate uh, beyond that. What can we also do is look at simplicity. I think that Dorette made a very uh, compelling argument, uh, in particular for SMEs, but also for others. Uh, 
um, because every time we review our legislation, we make it more complicated. We never make our, our legislation less complicated, and that profoundly worries me because it becomes increasingly difficult to explain what we are doing. It is, in fact, a basic, uh, a simple basic concept, but the elaboration of it has become quite heroic to explain. What we also should do um, is this money for innovation, uh, the earmarking or whatever the word is, the use of the revenues from auctioning, uh, but nothing uh, prevents you to make that debate at the member state level. I have no illusions that uh, no shall, shall appear in the legislation, I'm afraid. So um, uh, I think we will have to play in the should world, uh, but that does not diminish the fact that at the national level a debate can be made and a, and a debate needs to be made and we have an obligation now for member states to report about what you do with the revenues um, so that all can be done. I also would uh, uh, think that we have to reflect what Julia was making on how we use the derogation for the power sector. Um, there are important modalities that can be considered and uh, the heads of state have not given much guidance on that. Uh, so let's reflect on that. I would um, think that we had a little bit of a confused debate about the uh, relaxation or the worries we are having with coexisting policies. Because the policies we were debating are very different in nature. When we were partly debating about energy efficiency and renewables, I can see there is a case to be made to calibrate the two. That is what the market stability reserve is doing. I would like to repeat that uh, again. But uh, what was also mentioned is um, that we need more internal market and more construction of grids. That encourages the, uh, the functioning of the carbon market and does not undermine it. Uh, also, when we were talking about storage and, and batteries, I'm not necessarily uh, convinced that that is undermining the, the market functioning, so things can go in, into the same direction. And uh, the jury is still open on capacity mechanisms and the way the future the shape of the internal market is going to be, how that is going to calibrate. So these are all questions we have to clarify, and you have the full commitment of the, of the Commission to work on that, but they, the, the relationships between all these policies work in, in many different uh, uh, ways. So we, are, we, we, we must clarify that, and, and, and I'm looking uh, forward very much to have uh, follow-up debates in the EUI uh, and in the reflections that are uh, currently uh, happening here. And what we also can do is, on the linking debate, uh, we can raise the awareness for future linking, so as to prevent uh, problems in the future. Um, we uh, can also, perhaps as part of the international negotiations, look at the common registry. I think that uh, Dirk was uh, uh, making a hint at that. Uh, but uh, we should not hide there is a governance uh, issue that needs to be sorted out, in particular at the level of the, of the UN. What is then more for the long term, I would think? Uh, the real linking, I think, is a long-term issue. Um, I think Dan was making the point very clearly, you know, for China it's not for the immediate future, so let's reason more in terms of a decade or more, rather uh, than in the coming years. Um, I think also the point that was made about we need a central bank or a central regulator, that would be a major difference compared to where we are today, and what we saw in the debate on the 
on the backloading and on the market stability reserve is that there was no appetite to give more discretionary power at any EU institution, whether it is the Commission or anybody else. Uh, so I think we will have to uh, play in the rule setting, and that's uh, clearly what we are doing for uh, some time. And also what I think we should reflect on is uh, the hint that Dan was making on exchange rates. You can have one for two or one for three over time. Uh, that's a basic, uh, a very fundamental change that we would uh, consider. And I think also in the same mood, Felix was uh, suggesting that we need to look at the demand side. Um, technology specific, you said, Felix. So that means also, you know, toying around, if I understand it well, with the exchange rate, and, and do we want an exchange rate? I mean, that's a very fundamental debate uh, that I cannot see happening in the coming uh, uh, two, three, four years. I think we, uh, we need to have much more reflection on these elements before we can uh, take these design issues forward. But uh, there is a lot on our plate, uh, and I, um, I would like to thank very much uh, all of you uh, having uh, brought so many elements on our agenda and we all have been listening uh, very uh, cautiously and attentively to the debate. Thank you very much. Thanks, Charles. Before we now get to the closing remarks, there is one more uh, step we have on the program, which I think is a very special occasion today, because we have invited one person to summarize the proceedings of today. And that's a person that has been around for a long time in the EU ETS, who is usually sitting in those conferences and asking questions and writing press stories thereafter, so she is never giving presentations, having slides, you know, being, being a visible face, but she plays a very important role as the process-based reporter of Bloomberg News, who is basically explaining to those people in the market, to those people behind trading screens, what the regulators are deciding in process. So she's playing a very good, a very important translation role in making sure that regulatory decisions are understood by the market. So with this, I would like to invite uh, Eva Krukowska, the uh, process-based Bloomberg News reporter will share her views, her views about what she has heard today in these uh, three sessions being debated. Thank you so much, Peter, and thank you so much for having me here. It was a fascinating debate today, and it was really very, very interesting to hear the story of the ETS told by those people who helped to, to create the system. And uh, what I can say after listening to all of you today is that it has been an exceptional decade for the European climate policy. After all, the European Union has the biggest and the first world market to reduce emissions. And uh, it might have been a decade full of growing pains, but the system has endured all the challenges. And um, as the world's very first carbon market, it was very unlikely to be perfect to start with, but it does evolve and it enjoys wide support in general across industries, NGOs and lawmakers. The discussion today started with a question about the factors that made it possible for the ETS to be started. It was born as an alternative to a carbon tax, as a tool to help Europe meet its Kyoto Protocol goals, and today it does remain Europe's preferred policy instrument. The first three years of the program was an introductory phase. Member states developed their own allocation plans and participants were led to familiarize themselves with the system. Europe was learning by doing. That was the expression that I heard most often after I moved to Brussels from, from, from Warsaw. And uh, 
I guess one of the first lessons was that over-allocation can lead to price uh, drops. When the 2005 emissions data showed a surplus of permits, prices halved to around 13 euros. And as banking of allowances was not allowed in the first phase, by the end of that period they collapsed close to one euro cent. In the second phase that started in 2008, uh, the EU opened the door to imports of credits from the UN CDM and JI. And what no one was capable of predicting was the crisis, which hit industrial output and undermined demand for EU emission allowances. The slowdown, which coupled with our inflows of international credits, started pushing prices down. By the end of the trading period, the surplus swelled to more than 2 billion permits, which is an equivalent of, of annual supply. And uh, prices plunged again. The third trading period may be remembered as sort of a rescue phase, I would say. The registry regulation was amended to ensure a more centralized system. Um, national caps were replaced by an EU-wide cap. Auctioning was introduced as the default method of allocating allowances, and we saw more than 50 benchmarks. And then, to curb the surplus, the EU introduced the backloading regulation, which basically was meant to delay the sales of 900 million allowances. The battle in, in the European Parliament and in the Council of the EU was neither short nor easy. And I remember that at some point market participants started to lose faith that will, it will ever get adopted. And that was the moment when in April 2013, prices fell below three euros again. Then they regained some, some ground, partly on expectations that the market stability reserve will be introduced. But even today, the impact is quite limited because some investors do not believe that all the allowances that, were, that are to be removed from the market will be kept in the market stability reserve for good. Um, the regulation is set to be approved in early July, and uh, even though some of the difficulties might have deterred many investors, a lot of speakers have pointed today that the ETS might have reached its turning point. Uh, it has enabled decoupling of economic growth and emission uh, growth. The ETS has also raised awareness of the cost of emissions and the value of investment to lower pollution. And as Jos put it uh, earlier today, we got the ship afloat even with the worst recession since, since the Second World War. Um, <coughs> Many speakers pointed out today that one of the reasons why, the, why it was possible to start the ETS was that the system was not a tax. It did not require unanimity. It guaranteed the achievement of emission reduction targets and, and at the same time provided some flexibility for businesses. Now I think all eyes will be on the review of the ETS. As Commissioner Arias Caniete pointed today, the Commission is working very hard on that and hopes to, propose, uh, to present the proposal before the end of the summer break. Um, the, one of the most important issues that the Commission will have to focus on is free allocation of allowances and the innovation fund. Other ideas that are be being floated here and uh, in other discussions about the ETS include changes to the way that benchmarks are constructed, 
introduction of a price floor, border taxes, or even the central bank that Jos mentioned. Um, we also hear more voices that the system needs flexibility and that it's too complex to be understood by some investors. And uh, everybody's also waiting to see what the Commission will propose when it comes to uh, unallocated allowances under the market stability reserve. As I said, that is probably one of the factors that keeps a lid on prices right now. So any insights from you, Jos, on that would be great. <laughs> And uh, another issue that I guess the Commission will have to uh, address is the overlap of policies. You said earlier that the construction of the MSR will prevent prices from falling, but as we heard, a lot of people still have concerns about the overlap or some policies being redundant. Um, the review of the ETS will come four months before the COP21 in Paris. So it will also be a sign of how ambitious Europe is going to be in its future policies. And uh, probably in the next decade, we'll hear more about linkages and how the global system can evolve. And uh, I would like to wish the ETS all the best. It's also a kind of an egoistic wish because the more change it drives, the more interesting things there are to say about it, the more interesting stories I will have to write. So happy birthday and all the best. <laughs> Thank you very much, Eva. Thank you very much for your uh, excellent uh, uh, summary uh, of the day. It was a fruitful day. And um, I think uh, the atmosphere was excellent. It reminded me of the, of the many discussions and the lengthy discussions we had in the early days on the European Climate Change Programme because we had a mixture of all the stakeholders around the same table as happened today. Uh, we had businesses, we have the, the power sector, we have academic sector, government officials, uh, we had NGOs, we had the EU institutions. Um, I think that, that was a good feeling and the discussions that we were having today uh, were frank and open. And uh, we try to do this with the maximum of uh, transparency, also through the, 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 the web streaming. So I would like to thank you all for your uh, very uh, creative contributions and, uh, and for the nice discussion we had today. For us, it's a, a lot of food for thought. Um, and uh, for us, I mean um, the commission team that uh, uh, is here around the table, the, the past and the, and the, the present team, and uh, Peter Viss and... Uh, and Peter Zapfel and, and Yvonne and, and Damien, uh, they have been uh, representing here a lot of uh, DG Klima colleagues and a lot of colleagues in the Commission because this is teamwork. We do not do that uh, only on our own and I would like to use this opportunity to express my uh, sincere thanks for, uh, for uh, a journey that was long and, 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 and difficult and that promises to be long and difficult also for the future. But we are looking forward to that. So thanks to my colleagues and thanks also to the EUI. Uh, Javier, um, I, I think uh, we enjoyed here uh, your excellent premises. We, we made an offer that DG Climate uh, would come to this place and you would uh, take our Beaulieu 24 building in, uh, in Brussels, but you were not very keen in doing that. And I understand. But, uh, the preparation uh, that you were putting in, in this day to day, the cooperation that we had with uh, the EOI and the uh, Schumann Center in the past, 
uh, and uh, has been excellent and, and we uh, really look forward to continue that in the, in the future. So thanks for the excellent work. We have, you have been taking care of all of us in, an, in, a, in a way that uh, really is outstanding. And uh, at, the, at the same time, we could enjoy the best of Lawrence. So thanks very much. Thanks to you all. Thanks to the Institute and thanks to all the speakers. And uh, see you soon to continue the work. Thank you very much. Thank you, Jos. Uh, let me say a few words. We still have a few minutes. Uh, we'll have the, the buses waiting for us uh, outside at 5.30. Uh, I'm not going to do a summary. Of course, we had excellent summaries by Jos uh, after every session. And, and of course, Ewa uh, gave uh, another excellent uh, talk about what we, we did today. Um, it was an exceptional day for us. I have to, to say it as, as FSR climate. Uh, first of all, because we, we played a part of our role here. I mean, we are a research unit, but we are also uh, very interested in dissemination and also in acting as a hub for other researchers and also for policymakers, stakeholders, etc. So, so this is, uh, first of all, something that I think we, we did today and, and, and we are very happy uh, uh, with this. Uh, second, I already said that this uh, yesterday at the beginning of the dinner um, we are very happy to celebrate to celebrate a major eu tool against climate change and uh, of course this is part of our work as well study this instrument and others uh, which are part of uh, european climate policies and um, we did it today here as well and finally, do this celebration, do this debate uh, with the people that we have around. I mean, uh, uh, all of you, or most of you, uh, played a very, very important role um, in, in explaining or in creating this system. So not only the commission people, all of us know, you know that this system wouldn't be possible without them but also other stakeholders uh, around here, people from, from companies, uh, consultants, academics. I think that uh, you know, it's an honor for us to, to have all these people around uh, this table and also to be able to share this uh, with the world outside. And, and we did this with the live streaming and we'll report the, the actual people who were uh, watching this uh, soon. Um, we'll prepare some materials from, from, this, uh, from this event. Uh, we'll um, have a website for all of you with uh, you know, some of these materials. And also we'll, we'll have an edited uh, version of, of, of all the, the day, right? I mean, we won't have like uh, six hours or seven hours because that would be uh, a bit boring probably. But we'll make a, a good selection of of, of, of the day and, and we'll make it available because I think this is also our uh, task here, you know, and, and, and today uh, this, uh, I think the debate was very good and, and we'll make it available. Um, I, I think I can promise also some uh, online debates after, after this uh, event. So Jean-Michel yesterday told you that FSR is, uh, expert in organizing online debates which are easily seen so we'll 
prepare some online debates related with this um, 10th anniversary in the next uh, few months and we'll keep you posted and it will be a very easy way to, to continue, to continue uh, debating and this is very nice because you can do it with people in different places and also you can have a lot of audience sending questions and, and participating. We already did it with, with uh, some, some issues here and, and I promise we'll do it. Right? And um, finally, my, my thanks. And uh, I want to start with Peter. We, we, we worked, uh, you know, a lot uh, on this. And I, I think that, you know, he, he, he has a lot of responsibility uh, for, for this having taken place because, I mean, having this program and, and these people around is not easy. And, and, and I want to start thinking, Peter, and uh, I also want to, to, to thank uh, my team. You know, they, they supported uh, us a lot. And also uh, the logistics people, uh, Barbara, Elisabetta, they, they did a, a great job. And, and you know, the, the premises, uh, how things are work today, they are not due to, to, to me or, or my team, but to them. So I, I want to, to, to be especially thankful to, for that with them. And um, I want to thank you all, all of you again. I mean, I know it's not easy to, to come here to Florence, although it's very nice. And uh, for many of you who are so busy, so thanks. And finally, I, I, I want to say that we, I mean, you are in your house, that we hope to continue working on, on these lines uh, for many years. That um, we have our annual conference which will be fully academic, uh, an academic annual conference uh, in late October. Um, we'll have nice keynote speakers and uh, the, the, the annual conference will be on evaluation of European climate policies and EU ETS will be part of it, but there will be more. So it will be an economics conference and we'll be waiting for you if you are interested in it. And I hope to see you in 2025, perhaps here, 10 years from now. So thank you very much.